You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 537. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Ghost Captain Jeff broadcasting live from Studio 3L at the Hilton University of Florida Conference Center in Gainesville. Today's show is recorded on the 17th of September, 2022. In today's episode, human remains are found in the Baltic Sea following the crash of a private jet. A man died in the crash of his ultralight aircraft while scattering the ashes of his father. More news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables, seat backs, and the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 537 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I am Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me from... A place to stand. Here we go. A place to stand. A place to grow. A place to grow. Ontario. She's doing stand-up in Ontario, Toronto. Retired financier, aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director is Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Liz? I'm good. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm glad you were able to join me. Otherwise, I'd be very lonely here. And, you know, without guidance. Don't want you to be lonely. No. Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure the chat room would keep you in order. Yeah, know. yeah, I don't pay attention to them. Yeah, uh, no. It's too distracting. <laughs> okay, um, I'll be here. Okay, she'll be behind the scenes later. talking to me in my in my my ear. And uh, so here, uh, welcome to the uh, this week's episode of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Um, I'm Liz and I, Liz and me are the only ones here. No, Liz and I are the only ones here. <laughs> I'm getting confused. Anyway. Um, the rest of the crew uh, were busy doing other things, like important things in life. Uh, Nick is uh, Captain Nick is on holiday, and uh, Nick Camacho, I believe, is uh, uh, traveling and working. And uh, Miami Rick, of course, he's probably flying freight somewhere on the other side of the world. And uh, Steph, she's flying human freight. Human freight. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the in the Charlotte area, I'm sure. Um, I think it's a nice day, nice weather up up that direction. And I'm here Jumper dumping. in uh, Gainesville, Florida, home of the uh, University of Florida uh, Gators, and uh, staying at the hotel that they stay in. I don't know why they stay in a hotel in their own town, in their own school. But anyway, they do. But that's neither here nor there. We're going to talk about aviation stuff. And so let's get on to the news.
stand by for news. Okay, the first item in our news notebook, uh, Tracep Antonov, AN-28 near Bukavu. On September 10th, 2022, aircraft is missing, but officially reported crashed. And this is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, they were performing a freight flight from Bukavu to Kasizi in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DR Congo, with three crew and two tons of cargo went missing on its about one-hour flight after departure from Bukavu at about 15, 1350 local time. The aircraft has not been not landed at any airport around a search is underway. Okay, this is when it was first reported. According to Radio Okapi, um, a radio station operated by the United Nations, the aircraft departed Bukavu, Bukavo. I always thought it was Bukavu. Oh, it's spelled differently in this paragraph. And was never heard again on the radio. Uh, search hampered by bad weather so far has not succeeded to find the aircraft. Residents at Shabunda, about 80 nautical miles west of Bukavu, reported the wreckage of a small plane has been found with none of the occupants uh, surviving. So far, it's unclear whether this is the trace-up aircraft. There have been several past crashes in that area. Oh, <laughs> that's not good. Um, on September 12th, uh, South Kivu's Bukavu's provincial minister for transport reported the aircraft had experienced a problem and crashed. All three aboard, two Russian pilots, one Congolese mechanic, perished. The search for the aircraft is still ongoing. The causes of the crash are unclear. The minister provided a non-existing registration 9 Oscar November Sierra X-ray. And he, uh, Simon says, no photos, no registry, no evidence of this tail number. Okay. Uh, on September 14th, residents near Lulingu Airport, about 70 nautical miles west of Bukavu, reported having seen the aircraft. While the search now focuses on the area between Lulingu and Kasezi, park rangers of the Kahuzi Biega National Park. Folks, if you don't know by now why we read these kind of stories, it's because Liz just gets tickled when I try to pronounce all these names. I right? think you're doing fantastically yeah. well, Jeff. Oh. Nailed it. Yeah, she's saying, nailed it. Uh-huh. Um, Park rangers of the Kahuzi Biega National Park, their offices located about three nautical miles west of Bukavu, have been asked to look for the aircraft, too. A helicopter operating from Goma, uh, DR Congo, has joined the search, however, is limited as of current due to the weather. Uh, also on September 14th, uh, South Kivu's um, provincial minister for transport hinted in additional interviews, that overloading of the aircraft is being looked into. However, only the black boxes once found will clarify the cause of the crash. On September 16, the search was continued around Lulingu with the assistance by a United Nations helicopter. The missing aircraft had last contacted Bukavu Tower about five nautical miles out. Close. That's like final. Final approach fix inbound advising they were turning direct Kazezi and was subsequently observed overhead La Lingu at 1422 local. The aircraft had obviously turned on a more southerly route via Lulingu uh, due to a weather front on their direct routing to Kazizi. 
Local sources reported the aircraft suffered engine problems. The aircraft had a systematic problem. The engines overheated on every flight. <laughs> that's not, that's no. not good. <laughs> Maybe that's why they had a mechanic on board. Yeah, it's like if it overheats on every flight, there's something wrong. I, yeah. That's my professional Don't opinion. Don't fly that. Like, yeah. Uh, on September 16th, the Aviation Herald received information from a relative of one of the pilots that oh. both pilots were Ukrainian citizens, not Russian pilots. Uh-oh. They had not been informed about the aircraft missing and became only aware of the missing aircraft when the pilot didn't answer their messages for six days and subsequently discovered the coverage on Aviation Herald. <laughs> the airline, oh, upon their query, then stated that the aircraft was missing. They have no further information so far. The pilot had not mentioned any problems with the aircraft in the number of years he had been flying the aircraft for Trace Up. Hmm. Except it overheated every time. Well, maybe. I don't know. That's uh, Liz is saying, except it overheated every time. But that's kind of uh, conflicting information there, isn't it? Mm. Trace Up, Congo Aviation, based in Goma, DR Congo, reported they had been founded in 2003 and operate cargo charter flights with a fleet of one AN-28 and are trying to introduce a Let L410. Uh, well, I guess they don't have one AN-28 anymore. You're right, Liz. They uh, they no longer have that uh, one. Their fleet has uh, has <laughs> been dramatically reduced. Yeah. Okay. So there we go. That's the update on They still haven't this found crash. it, I guess. Well, I guess not. Um, yeah, they haven't found it, apparently. Hmm. All right. Well, that was interesting. Yeah. Hopefully they'll be able to find it. Mm-hmm. And I hope you enjoyed my attempt at pronounce, pronouncing all those Ding. names. Yeah. Let's see. You, you want me to do this? There we go. Yeah. Okay. Let's move to item B. Uh, I don't like this headline. This is from cbsnews.com. Body parts and debris found in Baltic Sea after ghost plane, in, in quotation marks, crashes with prominent businessman, three others on board. Human remains and debris have been found, or debris, if you'd prefer, have been found in the Baltic Sea. How do you say it, Liz? Do you say debris or debris? Debris. Okay. Kind of the way the U.S. pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, They've been found in the Baltic Sea during a search operation off Latvia's coast where a private jet crashed in mysterious circumstances, likely killing all four occupants. Uh, Carl Peter Griezmann, a prominent German businessman, was aboard the plane with three others. A spokesman for Quick Air, an air charter company based in Cologne, told Reuters on Monday. Local newspaper Express reported that Griezmann was the pilot and he, that he was with his wife, daughter, and his daughter's boyfriend. Lieutenant Commander Piteris Subalto, head of the Latvian military's Marine Search and Rescue Coordination Center, told the Associated Press that remains of human bodies we believe to be associated with the crash were found Tuesday during the search operation by Latvian Coast Guard vessels and underwater robots. Air traffic controllers on Sunday lost contact with the Cessna Citation 551 jet carrying four people shortly after it took off from the Spanish city of Yerez. Would you say is that the Yerez, one? yeah. Yerez, okay. The aircraft en route to Cologne, Germany, had early report, earlier reported problems with cabin pressurization. That Uh-oh. could be a clue there. Several European countries scrambled fighter jets as the plane made its way across the continent, but were unable to see or contact anyone in the cockpit. German media reported promptly, uh, no, German media reported 
prompting tabloid Build, B-I-L-D, to call the aircraft a ghost plane. I guess because they couldn't. I guess maybe if there was, a, if it was a pressurization problem and the pilot was a suf- was suffering from hypoxia, maybe he just you know went unconscious and slumped over or something. Maybe that's why they couldn't see anybody in the cockpit. Uh, the Cessna disappeared from radar while it was flying off course over the Baltic Sea, apparently on autopilot, and then later crashed into Latvian waters some 23 miles northwest of the port city of Ventspils. Um, the underwater search has not yet located the plane wreck, but Subato, Subata, Subota said the chances of finding it should be reasonably good as the water is only up to 200 feet deep at the site and the seabed is accessible. Navy spokeswoman Liva Vieta told the AFP news agency that 11 pieces of airplane debris were found in the sea, including fragments of airplane seats and some possible baggage items like shoes. Several body parts were recovered, she said. Media reports said that the Austria-registered aircraft was built in 1979, and it didn't have a a so-called black box that would help determine the cause of the crash. According to the data tracking website Flight Radar 24, the plane took off from the Spanish city of Jerez de la Frontera at 2.56 p.m. on Sunday. The plane flew over Swedish airspace in the Baltic Sea, Uh, before crashing into the sea uh, just before 8 p.m. The BBC reported that Griezmann was a prominent member of the Cologne Carnival, and the Carnival posted a tribute to him on its Facebook page. Looks like a very very, uh, happy guy there in his Carnival carnival, uh, outfit. And he was piloting, right? And he was piloting, yes, Liz. He was piloting, and his wife and his daughter and his daughter's Boyfriend, Boyfriend, I guess. Um, were so Gina born. makes a good point there. She says it reminds everyone of the Payne Stewart um, it sure does. event. Yep, which was um, an episode of um, pressurization issues. And, you know, we've talked about it many times in the show where um, hypoxia um, is, is such a um, insidious kind of a thing that happens in, like, uh, what do they say, like uh, boiling a frog. Although I can't really relate because I've never boiled a frog, uh, (laughs) and I've never been a frog in boiling water. But apparently, you know, the water comes up to temperature, and before the frog realizes it, that it's it's dead because the water's boiling, and you know, whatever. You get the uh, get the idea. Yeah, the gradual thing, insidious. You don't really know it's happening until it's too late, and uh, you know, the the oxygen to your brain is just not sufficient to keep it. Thinking clearly at first, and then, of course, uh, you then slip into um, unconsciousness. And uh, unless you get the partial pressure of oxygen back up, your brain's not going to wake up. And, you know, I guess it's a good way to go. You know, you're not, you know, you just basically go to sleep. You die in your sleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you happen to be in an airplane and crashing into the water. That's not good. Now, uh, would they wake up again as the plane descended? um, Well, um, Liz asks a good question. Um, they, I, I, I've heard of instances where an aircraft in a gradual descent and the partial pressure of oxygen um, increasing enough to revive the, you know, the brain stem and the consciousness. Um, but I think I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not a doctor. I wish we had our doctor, 
with us today so she could give us more information about this sort of thing. Did you stay at a Holiday Inn, though? But, uh, oh, no, I did stay. No, I haven't stayed at a Holiday Inn Express lately either, so I can't really even fake it. No. Okay. Um, but I think that there is a certain amount of time, if a certain amount of time elapses without sufficient oxygen to the brain, mm-hmm. that you know, even damage, if it's a gradual descent, damage, you basically yeah. never, never recover from no. it. But again, I could be wrong about that. Definitely not. Yeah. A, uh, all I know is that we're trained as pilots to recognize symptoms of hypoxia, like cyanosis, you know, your fingernails turning blue or your lips turning mm-hmm. blue. Of course, if you're not looking in a mirror, you're not going to see that. But you might notice your fingernails turning, um, uh, called cyanosis, uh, turning cyan or blue. Uh, you Cyanotic. might notice maybe... Uh, some tingling of some of your extremities and uh, don't go there. I know. I know what you're thinking. And um, let's see what else. Um, you know, kind of just a general fogginess and maybe even um, kind of uh, like you don't really you're starting. Well, this is kind of the way I am most of the time. I don't really care what's happening. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just a, and you're just laughing. You know, we've we've heard um, recordings of people. Um, on the radio in uh, yeah indifference that's a good word for it uh, on the radio and basically it sounds like they're drunk and in a way you know that uh, it's just a, that's one form of hypoxia right mm-hmm. when you're drinking you know the oxygen mm-hmm. mo- molecules I think are replaced by the alcohol or the capacity of your blood to carry oxygen is di- is diminished mm-hmm. and so the same thing sort of happens when you're uh, I'm I'm you know trying to induce some alcohol-related hypoxia right at the moment. Hang on. Let me, let me give okay. it a try. Mm-hmm. I know. How would you tell show the us difference? Your fi- show us your fingernails. All right. Fingernails are not blue. Oh, I see, so. a, I see a blue one. Oh, hey, this is where I, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not flipping the bird at you. Right, so I'll hold up all my fingers. But, yes, on my middle finger on my right hand, this is where the uh, that new cooler, oh. my Yeti cooler, I was yeah. dumping out of the uh, dumping not the ice out and the water out of the thing and – the, uh, the lid is very heavy, and it slapped the heck out of my finger. And it's still, mar- that was back in what, July? It's still in the middle of my finger. Anyway. Yeah. So, well, we can yak yeah. on and on about uh, hypoxia, but that's, um, you know, what they're, what they're kind of thinking may have happened. Anyway, let me continue with this article. Uh, several European countries scrambled fighter jets as the plane made its way across the continent. Oh, I think we already read that. Uh, hmm. Cessna disappeared from radar while it was flying off course over the Baltic Sea, apparently on autopilot. Hmm. I thought we've already read that, too. Um, hmm. I think you put, pretty much covered it, Jeff. Yeah, I think that that basically covers it. Yeah, I know what happened. I'd already reached the end of the article, and then I just scrolled back up. <laughs> now I'm reading. There you go. The hypoxia, uh, the alcoholic-induced uh, um, hypoxia is taking effect, apparently. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there we go. That's, uh, I'm scrambling some fighter jets to come by your <laughs> Thank hotel. Thank you, Liz is scrambling some fighter jets for me. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's enough of that one. Hopefully they'll they'll figure out what happened. Here's another happy story. Another happy story. Thank you, Liz. Um, a man, this is from CBS, also from CBS News. You're spending too much time on CBS News, Liz. Oh, no. <laughs> a man killed in ultralight aircraft crash was scattering his father's ashes in minnesota so officials sad. say this is sad I, and sad. i'm la- I la- i'm not laughing because i think it's funny i just sad um a man who died in a plane crash this week in minnesota was scattering his father's ashes 
law enforcement officials said. KLAS-TV reported that deputies who responded to the scene learned that the passenger in the plane, Lee uh, Semensky, 58 years old, was scattering his father's ashes. Semensky and the pilot identified the victims as 61-year-old Douglas Johnson. Oh, wait. Oh, Semensky and the pilot, who was identified as a 61-year-old Douglas were two Johnson, of them on board. were killed when the amphibious ultralight aircraft they were riding in crashed in north-central Minnesota, according to the Crow Wing County Sheriff officials. Both died at the scene of the crash Sunday in some woods northwest of Emily. Johnson operated the business Fly the Swan. Its, a, its website said a ride and this picture that we're seeing here on the video, and we'll have in the show notes as well, uh, is a picture from their website, Fly the Swan, uh, said a ride on the amphibious ultralight gives a customer a bird's eye view of the lakes and land and the experience of touching down on the water. The FAA said that the 2010 Cygnet aircraft, C-Y-G-N-E-T, Cygnet? Cygnet, yeah. Cygnet aircraft. Baby swan. Oh, that's a, a baby swan. Ah, see? I learn something new every every show. Uh, crashed under unknown circumstances while attempting to land. The sheriff's office was called shortly before 7 p.m. and notified the aircraft had taken off but had failed to reach its destination. Emergency responders located the crash scene about 8.30 p.m. Uh, Semensky was a longtime Las Vegas resident, but he sold his business in February to return to 50 Lakes, Minnesota. Semensky's father, Leo John Semensky, died at his home in 50 Lakes on August 7, according to the online obituary, the Coop Funeral Home. That's so, you know, his, his dad obviously wanted his ashes spread over some beautiful lakes, and he was following through with that request, I, I surmise here. And then, you know, irony, uh, he ends up dying in a plane crash while attempting to, you know, do his father's wishes. I've never seen one of those things with pontoons like that. I've never seen um, anything like that either, Liz. It's an um, interesting ultralight. Um, it looks mm-hmm. kind of like a, almost like, what do they call those, those um, kite, like water? Yeah, like uh, a racer. Like a kite. Yeah, uh, like, kind of thing. Yeah, with pontoons, though. Looks like it'd be yeah. awfully heavy. Heavy. It says yeah. ultralight, so I guess they're ultralight pontoons or something. I don't know. All right, uh, let's continue on with this one. Um, uh, let's see, this is the Aviation Herald. A binter, I've never heard of binter, have you? No. Binter Canarias Aviance de Transport Regional, ATR, 72-212 Alpha. Registration Echo Charlie, Mike November November, performing flight November Tango 207 from Fuerteventura, um, CI, that would be the Canary Islands, to Las Palmas, Canary Islands in Spain, with 68 passengers and four crew were cleared to land on Las Palmas's runway three right. An airport vehicle was operating on runway three left. The driver of this vehicle queried Tower whether the aircraft on, on approach was landing on runway three left. Tower confirmed visually the aircraft was aiming for runway three left and urged the driver to vacate down the runway. Uh, or vacate the runway. The vehicle sped off the runway. The aircraft subsequently touched down on runway three left. Remember that he was cleared to land on three right. On April 5th, 2022, Spain's CIA 
FIAC reported an investigation has been opened into the occurrence on September 2nd, 2022, so recently. The CIAIAC released their final report in Spanish, and then Simon goes on to explain that they really need to release these things in English since that's the international aviation language um, and chides them for that. And uh, he says the report concluded the probable cause of the accident was the controller did not adhere to the standard operating procedures by not actively listening to the erroneous readback by the aircraft. So I didn't read the full final report. So apparently in the final report, they talk about the fact that the airplane that landed on the wrong runway, the Binter Canarias uh, airline, uh, airplane ATR, probably were told that they were cleared to land on three right, but they may have read back cleared to land three left, and the controller didn't pay attention to the fact that that was an erroneous readback. I'm just guessing there because I didn't read the final report. Um, some of the comments um, that are kind of nice to read on the Aviation Herald website uh, kind of give a little bit more in-depth information about a lot of these events. Not always. Some of the times people are being just kind of snarky and nasty and saying bad things and casting aspersions and that kind of thing. Uh, but you can every once in a while glean something from the comments like uh, this one. Um uh, by ATC. It's not easy to tell whether an aircraft is going for three left or three right. They are just a couple hundred meters apart. And from the ATC position, it looks pretty much the same until the aircraft is a dozen seconds from threshold. Same for the radar. It doesn't pinpoint the aircraft with, this, with such precision and integrity in order to be able to solely determine whether they are in final for three left or three right, especially with a late turn onto final. Um, anyway, uh, there was another one here that I wanted to read um, that, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, Hans says, if you've flown um, hundreds of times onto or into three left, you can get it easily wrong when you should approach three right the 101st time. Too much routine can be a danger. So I get, apparently three left is the normal runway that they use for air carriers. And so they were probably just thinking that this fixated. is yeah fixated on the wrong runway. And uh, mm -hmm. air traffic control apparently missed uh, a bad readback. And luckily, somebody was paying attention, like the vehicle on the runway going, hey, it looks like these guys are lining up on Head the runway that I'm on. And then the so I don't, I'm not sure why the controller, you know, he, he took the time to tell the vehicle on three left to get to vacate the runway, which is good. But he didn't, or he or she, uh, didn't tell the airplane that was aligning for the wrong runway to go around. I mean, mm -hmm. that would have been, yeah. to me, the most sensible thing to do. Say, hey, looks like you're lined up on three left. I, I cleared you to land on three right, so go ahead and go around. We'll try this again. Uh, but he instead let them land on the, on the wrong runway. Strange. Not sure why. Yeah. Anyway, interesting incident. Um, we'll continue on with this next one. Um, plane wreckage. This is from the nationalnews.com. Plane wreckage from a 1968 crash found on Swiss Glacier. 
And uh, Liz is putting the picture of the crash site in the glacier. And honestly, I don't know, Liz, if you were able to figure out exactly what we're looking at there. It looks like like glacial well, I guess ice. Maybe that that hole in the ice. Maybe okay. I don't know. There's like a dark spot, and there's like yeah. a hole there. That yeah, it's just really hard for me to tell. I guess the resolution's not very high. I guess this is climate change happening here. This is uh yeah. Well, you know, it's just the natural cycle of the Earth um, warming and cooling, and it's warming now, so this ice is melting and revealing things. Um, yeah, this airplane crashed in the Swiss Alps in 1968 and um, was discovered, has been discovered on a glacier more than 50 fear, 54 years on, police said on Friday. Uh, the pieces emerged from the Aletsch Glacier in the southwestern Wallace Canton near the Jungfrau and Monk mountain peaks. Uh, police said the wreckage was discovered on Thursday. Investigations have determined that the parts were from the wreckage of a Piper Cherokee registration uh, Hotel Bravo Oscar Yankee Lima, which crashed at this location on June 30th, 1968. Recovery work will be undertaken as soon as possible, police said. The 24 Hours Regional newspaper said that on board were a teacher, a chief medical officer, and his son, all from Zurich. A mountain guide reportedly discovered the wreckage during an ex- exhibition. No, an expedition. <laughs> That's different. <laughs> uh, a mountain guide reportedly discovered the wreckage during an expedition in the area. The fatal plane crash occurred 500 meters south of the Jungfraujok saddle between the two peaks. The bodies were recovered at the time, but the wreckage was not. At the time of the accident, more than 50 years ago, the technical means to recover aircraft wreckage in difficult terrain were limited according to police. Due to the melting of the glaciers, particularly in summer, it's therefore possible that other pieces of wreckage may be released from the ice. In case of discovery, these elements must not be handled in order to avoid any risk of injury. They must be marked and immediately reported to the police. All right, there. So if you happen to be hiking around glaciers and you discover something like this, don't touch it. Tell the police. Right. Interesting. Kind of reminds me of uh, what was that movie, the uh, airplane that crashed in the, uh, in the Alps. In the Andes. In the Andes. Yeah. Oh. In Colombia. Where they the the cannibalism. Oh, one? the cannibalism. Yes. Yeah. Let's not go there. Yeah. Okay. I'm hungry, but not that hungry. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Um. Well, here's an interesting one. Let me play. Get this video started. And. Uh, Here we go. Back to the news article. Uh, Air Canada marks its 85th anniversary and donates CF or Charlie Foxtrot Tango Charlie Charlie historic aircraft from its original fleet to Winnipeg's Royal Aviation Museum of Western Canada. Uh, The Lockheed L-10A Electra arrives to a permanent home for the public to enjoy. And that's the uh, video that we're playing right now is kind of a B-roll. Um... In celebration of its 85th anniversary, Air Canada today donated its historic aircraft, an original Lockheed L-10A Electra airplane, to Winnipeg's Royal Aviation Museum of Western Canada. The iconic aircraft, the first fleet type flown by the carrier, made its final journey as it taxied from the Air Canada hangar at Winnipeg International Airport to the museum at a handover ceremony. The airplane will go on permanent public display as an iconic 
piece of aviation history. Uh, let's see. This aircraft was one of three purchased by Air Canada's forerunner, TransCanada Airlines, TCA, in 1937. It was, until recently, one of only two Lockheed L-10A Electra aircraft still flying in the world. Named after a bright star in the Pleiades? Pleiades, yeah. Pleiades, okay, star cluster. The 10A Electra was the pride of the Lockheed Aircraft Corporation. In the 1930s, this twin-engine, all-metal monoplane was the exciting new face of commercial aviation. There is no more fitting preservation and commemoration for one of our original aircraft than to have TCC be on permanent display in Winnipeg, which was one of TCA's original hubs when the airline began operations in 1937, thanks to its central location in our country. Air Canada has a long and rich history connecting Canadians from coast to coast, which continues to this day, and it all started with the Lockheed L-10A 85 years ago. As we celebrate our 85th anniversary, we uh, mark this milestone. Yeah. We mark this milestone by ensuring that such an important part of Canadian aviation history will be available for Canadians and aviation enthusiasts to enjoy for many years to come," uh, said Captain Murray Strom, Senior Vice President, Flight Operations at Air Canada. Uh, so, anyway. It's kind of sad it won't be flying again. I mean, it's great that it's going into the music. Oh, there it is, getting yep. a salute there. Yeah, we're getting the, uh, in the video, we're watching a, um, a water cannon salute um, as it um, slowly tax, taxis underneath. And uh, yeah, it is uh, sad, Liz, that um, it's um, not going to be flying anymore. It's just going to be a static display, I guess, from here on out. A beautiful airplane, though. And... Uh, you know, I've mentioned it so many times before. I've, I've flown a couple of Lockheed's airplane products, the uh, C-141B Starlifter uh, when I was in the Air, U.S. Air Force. And I've flown the uh, one of the best airplanes in the world ever, I think, a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. So um, if you want to learn more about this, it'll be in the show notes. And you can watch the video if you're listening to the uh, audio only show they also mentioned in the video that um i think that the flight across the trans-canadian flight in the electra was like 20 hours and they had to make a few stops mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. i think that uh, the amount of time that it would have taken before that was like multiples of, of, of that so that was kind of a breakthrough in being able to speed your way across canada with this particular airplane Okay. Well, that okay. will do it for the news segment. We're kind of just like going right through these things because uh, yeah. it's just me making commentary. And I'm sure that if we had uh, some of the other co-hosts there, they would have been saying some just amazing, amazing things. Uh, unfortunately, okay. uh, they're not here. <laughs> so um, you have to take what you can get. And um, so, is this getting to know me now? Getting to yeah, know oh, yeah, me? Yeah, it's not getting to know us, it's getting to know me. Uh, so, where is that? Uh, it is right here. Boom. Getting to know me. Getting to. <laughs> I forgot the words. <laughs> getting to like me, hoping that you like me too. Yeah. I'm not here by myself. Of course, Liz is there too. You just you just can't see her. But uh, you know, if you're listening to the 
uh, the the podcast, you hear her as well. So I'm not entirely alone. Uh, so this is the point of the show where we kind of get all caught up in what has been happening with the uh, crew members. And uh, basically, you just get to hear from me, unless Liz wants to chime in what she's been up to. Nope. Nope. Okay. Um, so we had originally planned to record this week's show on Thursday, but... Uh, I ended up having to do some very last-minute things to kind of get the uh, the house that my wife and I purchased back in August of 20, 2001, the week, I think I mentioned this before, like the week, weekend before 9-11. Um, so we uh, owned the house for uh, a long time, 21 years, and finally... <laughs> It was listed for sale on Friday, and so um, my wife's brother is the, our agent, and uh, he had uh, kind of a list of things that he felt that we needed to accomplish before we actually, before the uh, listing became live on Friday morning, and uh, so I was I was kind of busy, and I just couldn't really focus on getting prepped for the show on Thursday. So I thought, okay, well we're not going to do it. We'll postpone it or and or cancel. Um, and then I was um, informed that uh, it would be nice since they were expecting a lot of people looking at the house this weekend. I'm hoping that's true. I, don't, I haven't heard yet uh, that it might be a good idea for me to like stay in a hotel for the weekend um, in Roswell and out of the way and that, that sort of thing. So they wouldn't have to constantly be contacting me and tell me to skedaddle. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'll do one better. I'll uh, see if maybe uh, Acme uh, wants me to fly a trip. And uh, that way, uh, killing two birds with one stone, so to speak, I can be out of the way and I'll have Acme pay for my hotel. So win-win. So I picked up some overtime flying, left on uh, Friday morning, yesterday morning, and uh had a layover in Gainesville yesterday and a layover here again in Gainesville, Florida today. And then tomorrow I'll fly three legs and be back in Atlanta in the afternoon. And then I'll um, get ready to <laughs> repack the bag and head back out on my regularly scheduled trip, uh, leaving Monday morning, Monday through Wednesday. Speaking with your of your favorite first officer with my favorite first officer. Thank you, Liz. Yes. Uh, Brent. And so the next three trips I'm flying with, I think next three, maybe the next two. Uh, I'm flying with Brent. And in October, I'm flying three trips with uh, Brent as well. So it's a lot of fun flying uh, with him. Um, Looking forward to that. So um, we're going to be laying over in Tulsa. At least that's what what it says on paper on Monday. And uh, several APGers are living in the uh, Tulsa area. Um, Sean and uh, Larry Gregory, the geezer, and Josh Glaze um, are there. And anybody else that happens to be in the Tulsa area listening or within earshot, please um, feel free to join us. Uh, we're going to be, and I can't remember the name of the place that we're um, going to be meeting up. And I should tell you that information. It's in Tulsa. It's in the... Um, what do they call that area? The Blue Dome District, I think. It's near the um, hotel that we stay in in Tulsa. Um, I'm doing a quick 
uh, search while the show is in progress. See, normally I'd do this sort of thing when somebody else is talking about what they've been up to. And um, I can't because I'm the only one that's talking right now. So, um, so just bear with me. I'm looking up uh, Google Maps and I'm going to put in Tulsa and because it's important because if you're just now hearing this and you want to meet up with these fine folks, you need to know where we're going to be. So um, I think we stay at the Hyatt Regency. Can you look that up for me, Liz? Yeah, what the hotel? Stand by. Okay. And what do they call this district? I think they yeah, call it Hyatt the Hyatt Regency, Tulsa. Hyatt Regency. Yeah. And just down the road, I think it's called James McNelly's. James E. McNelly's Pub is where we are uh, meeting up and um, believe, tentatively speaking, about 4 o'clock, 4 p.m. in the afternoon on Monday, uh, Central Time, obviously, at James McNelly's Pub. You know, one of my first meetups several years ago uh, was right next door. It was a barbecue place, Albert G's Barbecue, right next door to McNelly's Pub. So uh, that was a lot of fun. We had a really good turnout, too, for that uh, meetup. I can't remember how many years ago that was. I think Brent was there, too, interestingly. Um, anyway, so there you go. That, that guy gets around. <laughs> that guy does get around, Liz, for sure. Okay, so um, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see you there um, on Monday afternoon in Tulsa at uh, James E. McNally's Pub. All right, and that, well, you're pretty much caught up uh, with what I've been up to. Just mainly, uh, you know, a bunch of a bunch of um, belongings that I had uh, in the basement of the house that were kind of cluttering up things, and I really had been kind of dragging my feet, um, figuratively speaking, uh, to get rid of some of the stuff. And uh, you know, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but many of you know that I'm planning to transition to a full-time uh, recreational vehicle lifestyle, RV lifestyle, when I get my RV, hopefully it's sometime next year. And uh, so I basically have to do some pretty massive downsizing with stuff. And I do have a, a storage unit, a 10 foot by 10 foot storage unit in Roswell. Um, but it's kind of full to the brim. And honestly, you know, I don't need all this stuff. And I just need, you know, some few a few items of clothing and you know that sort of thing and um so a lot of my broadcasting gear that's the most important thing liz you're right um so um you know a lot of the stuff that i had that you know is is thing stuff that you don't want to throw away but it was uh, donated to somebody that could could use it a lot of clothing and that kind of thing but uh, yeah so a lot of and a lot of stuff's going to be thrown away as well so that's that's okay. It'll be kind of uh, freeing my soul a little bit. You're I think. purging. Purging, yeah. yes, I am purging, Liz. Not purging, Liz. I am purging, comma, Liz. Um, and we're talking about getting rid of stuff. Just don't get the wrong idea of what I'm saying there. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So there you have it. Um, next week, um, not sure when we're going to be recording the next week's show. We'll certainly let you know as soon as we know uh, what the availability of the other crew members are. 
or is. Um, and uh, yeah. Last week's cover art? Yeah, let's talk about last week's cover art. Um, <laughs> our our uh, resident artist, uh, Captain Nick, uh, did it again. So uh, we kind of came up with the title, No Seawall, um, where an airplane crashed into a seawall. There was a seawall, but they didn't mm-hmm. see the seawall. And they hit, remember, with the right main gear tires and uh tail uh tail strike area uh hit the hit the wall took uh, a few chunks uh out of it and uh, so we kind of did a play on words um no see wall and uh, so i get it i don't see the wall and it's a sea wall so um and it's the um, great wall of china is what uh, he used for the for the photo and uh, he put in there, you can always go around. Yeah, you just need to execute the go around before you hit the seawall. Uh, that was very clever. Anything you want to add to that, Liz? Nope, I just, I just think it's very clever. I yeah. love it. Yeah, I, I do too. I think that uh, he's such a talented, clever guy, isn't he? I hope that he's having a wonderful time on his holiday. With his, yeah, we're going to have to find something simple for you to do for the oh, cover that's art right. this week. He's not so. going to be able to mm-hmm. do the artwork. I'm going to have to do it. Eh. Mm-hmm. Or we'll, maybe we'll somebody out there out. listening, you know, is really talented and can, you know, throw together some artwork really quickly. Just don't use anything that's copyrighted. Okay. And uh, let's see. I guess we can move on then to coffee fund. the coffee fund. And here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. I like, I like that really low voice you did there, Liz. Do you like that? I don't know. I don't like that. That was too much. Anyway, the Coffee Fund, it's your way to support the show financially. Many of you support the show just by listening and telling other people about it. Um, but uh, another way that you can show your appreciation and love for us is to uh, support the if you have the financial resources to do so. so join the Coffee Fund cadre or the Coffee Bar Club. And a um, couple of different ways to do that. Um, we have the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is uh, basically a PayPal donation page. And most people use that for uh, one-off, you know, one-time, every once in a while kind of donations. And since the last show, uh, we we had our recurring contributors, but no one-timers. So, um, yeah, think about that if you want to uh, give us a little bit of cash so we can buy some coffee and maybe some beer and other weekly, monthly operating expenses for the show. The other thing that we do is Patreon. You can become a patron of the show via Patreon.com. And we have a new executive producer. Yay, Stuart. Stuart up in uh, Canada, I think in um, uh, Alberta. Edmonton. Edmonton, Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Stuart, uh, for um, signing up to become a patron. Very, very nice. Yeah, and he's paying in Canadian dollars, which is pretty expensive for these days. I know. uh, the, The Canadian dollar is in the dumper. Canadian uh, Canadian dollar um, contributor and uh, 
but you know he he adjusted it i think to kind of you know get into that exec, executive producer uh category um when it equates to uh us dollars Excellent. so thank you so much uh stuart and all of you uh I, you know i don't mention it enough i mean we have these these patrons we have several patrons via patreon that um you know support each and every show that we publish and uh and we so appreciate you and your generous contributions and also we have the recurring contributors that uh, and the, they get to listen to the crew logs and the crew logs yeah and i well why did you have to bring that up liz <laughs> yes crew logs that's a benefit of um mainly patreon um it, to uh I, i've been trying to do as many personalized kind of um uh, crew logs. I was hoping to do it every day and I started off by doing that and then I kind of went every other day or so. And it's been so busy lately. I just haven't been able to do, um, as much as I wanted, but you know what? I think things are going to get better for me here soon. Uh, when the house sells, I won't have that to worry about anymore. And I'll have more time to focus on my listeners, you people that are so you know, you mean so much to me and um, appreciate you so much. And I'm going to do my best to uh, try to get uh, what, what do I call it. Not that I, I started off by calling it like a daily digest and then like uh, almost daily digest. And so I'm hoping to get back to regular the, updates, a regular, regular update. Updates. Yeah, that's that's what we'll call it, I guess. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Check it out via airline pilot dot com slash coffee. If you think you might be interested in uh, helping us out. Much appreciated. Okay. Um, guess now. Do you need a break? Do you need a break or anything? I need a break. Yes, to uh, take a sip of my uh, coffee. Okay. There you go. Ah, it's not coffee, by the way. It's it's beer. It's one of my favorite beers. Highlight Cigar City. Ah, okay. It's really, uh, how long have we been going? Not not that long. Uh, we're just coming up 10 minutes away from an hour. Okay. So under an hour still. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's, we're blowing through this. Yeah, baby. we're blowing through it really quickly. It's going to be a nice short show. A nice little treat for you all. Um, okay. I think I'm ready to cover some feedback. So let's play that bumper. Message. Let's start this feedback segment with um, some feedback from El Piloto. Um, hi, Jeff and APG crew on APG 533. We watched a video of an American mad dog doing a power back off the stand. Uh, that was at Dallas-Fort Worth, um, MD-82, I believe. Captain Nick later questioned the 757's ability to throw on the anchors. Well, here's a YouTube video of a 757 landing in uh, Skyathos. I don't know how you pronounce that. Do you, Liz? Skyathos? Skyathos? Oh, that sounds good. Skyathos in Greece basically saying, hold my beer by making the second turnoff, which is 2,600 feet or 800 meters after the, the 02 threshold. Well... Sort of. You'll see what I mean. Okay, what does he mean? So let's let's, uh, see. let's play this little video. Come on, mouse. 
Here we go. That's ah, windy. All right, we're looking at a island. Oh wait, we're seeing an airplane coming in, coming right at us. Oh, it's not very high off the ground. It's uh, touching down. Here's a different perspective. Um, okay, touches us down. And spoilers are up. Nose wheel down. Reversers coming out. And it looks like it's decelerating very rapidly. And it gets to a certain point. Looks like it's coming to a stop. Looks like it's a little bit past where captain wanted to turn off the runway so he's starting to turn to the left and he's going i don't think i have enough room to make this 180 turn to go back to that taxiway exit so he puts the reversers out and it's backing up i'm surprised we don't hear any beep, exactly beep 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 beep, beep. And there it goes, um, backing up, backing up, and another, this is a TUI uh, Airlines, another TUI, I think this is 737 in this case, is kind of in the foreground now, kind of taking, heading back toward the camera to get into position for takeoff, while the 757 in the background backs up, and now continues its left turn and exits the runway. There we go. Okay, and is now clear of the runway. Okay, that basically, there's more to this video, but that's the essential part of the feedback. So let me uh, return to feedback here. Oh, that's, that's all he said. He said, all the best, uh, Els Piloto. Okay, so a couple things here. Um, I'm wondering if that is a, a legal maneuver to do. Is that part of their standard operating procedures? Um, I don't know. I, I know that that's not something that ACME would be happy about condone. or condone. Yeah. If, uh, if they saw, they had video, saw well, some it's video. it's captured on video, so somebody at TUI must know about it. Yeah, I, I, you're right. So maybe the captain has discretion to use reverse to actually back up. It is an impressively performing airplane, that 757, as we mentioned before, and I mentioned, I've mentioned before where I've jump-seated flying into John Wayne, um, Orange County Airport, and it's a very short runway, and uh, it, it'll stop. And But I haven't seen anybody actually, you know, put the darn thing in reverse because they overshot a little bit. Um, but um, that is interesting. So I don't know. Maybe somebody out there knows whether or not that that's, that's something that's routinely. I mean, I, I don't know why. Maybe uh, maybe Miami Rick could let us know. Yeah, maybe Miami Rick would, uh, would know the answer to that. I don't know. Um, I wonder why, you know, he he or she couldn't have continued, you know, they missed the point that they wanted to turn off. Why not just go down a little bit further? I'm sure that there was like a turnaround area at the other end of the runway that they could have, you know, just done a complete 180 circle and then back. He wanted a beer. He wanted a beer. He was very thirsty. Yeah, that could be. He was very thirsty. 
Um, I don't know. Interesting um, maneuver. And you got to know that when you're landing on little islands like this and you have a audience that people are going to be taking video. So uh, that's why I'm thinking, well, maybe this is not unusual. Maybe this is something that yeah. is, is uh, allowed or put up with anyway. Anyway, there we have it. Thank you, uh, Els Piloto, for sending in the feedback. And uh, Justin sent us some feedback, uh, some audio feedback. Justin Blakely, Blakey, I'm sorry. And uh, here we go. Let's see what uh, Justin has to say. Hello, APG crew. My name is Justin. I've been listening to the show off and on for about a year or two now. This is my first feedback. Uh, so just a little about me. I'm a private pilot, instrument rated. I'm currently working on commercial and then eventually CFI. I'm writing in today because I had a question about visual approaches. I know that's a topic that gets brought up semi-frequently on this show. Uh, I know for a fact that airline pilots will, when they fly a visual approach, typically use an instrument approach procedure, like an ILS or an RNAV or whatever the runway has, for additional guidance. And I 110% understand why airline pilots do that. I do that, uh, I do that too in my GA flying. What I didn't really understand and what I wanted to ask you guys about is I remember it being brought up on the show a few weeks ago how airline pilots sometimes, like let's say you're flying into an airport at night, maybe you haven't been there before, you're unfamiliar, maybe there's some terrain and obstructions in the area. Some airline pilots will, even if it's clear in a million and even if they see the airport, still request an instrument approach from ATC. And the question that I wanted to ask about that is, if the guidance that you're going to end up using is exactly the same, and the flight path that you're going to fly is almost identical, what real difference does it make whether you're cleared for an instrument approach or a visual approach? Because I know on the ATC side, there are some real advantages to using visual approaches, and I just wanted to understand why sometimes pilots would prefer to do an instrument approach, even if the guidance that they end up using is the same. And I guess as a follow-up to that, if you're going to be landing on a runway that has no instrument approaches at all, an example of that would be runway four left at Boston, at least for the time being. How do you navigate the airplane and how do you set yourself up for a stable approach when there is no external guidance available to you whatsoever? So I guess those were the two things that I wanted to ask you guys. I'm looking forward to your opinions on that. And um, finally, before I go, I wanted to say to the KC-135 boom operator that uh, frequents this show, hi, Chris, phone tag, you're it. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> I don't remember that part of I've listened to this before. I don't remember that last uh, little bit, the phone tag, uh, boom operator, Chris. Okay, you guys. Um, let's see. Let me do something here. I meant to uh, pull up uh, Boston Logan just so that I could look at the, uh, the approach and the airport diagram. Isn't um, Captain Nick quite uh, adamant about not accepting visual approaches? Is that well, one of his things? Um, well, yeah, this is, uh, Liz is saying, isn't Captain Nick, you know, kind of adamant about not accepting visual approaches? In in the in the case of Captain Nick, his, from what I recall, his greatest concern about accepting visual approaches in very busy airports like Atlanta International, Boston, Kennedy, whatever, is that um, the perception that now they're not going to be give, provided, uh, you know, separation uh, from the airplane ahead okay. and that the pilot now has all that responsibility on his or her shoulders, which is true. And in but the but he, the way again, hopefully I'm, I'm representing his viewpoint um, sufficiently um, that 
that that puts the pilot at a disadvantage. I look at it from a different perspective. I'm, I'm 180 degrees out. This gives me more um, discretion and control over the separation that I have between myself and the flight ahead of me. And if I need to make adjustments to speed, flight path, that kind of thing, I can do that uh, within reason and uh, and make it a safer operation. Uh, So visual approaches, yes, give a lot of flexibility, not only to air traffic controllers, uh, but also to pilots. The thing that really makes it an advantage for air traffic controllers is the fact that they don't have to extend the finals so far out. If you're accepting a visual approach, um, you know, you you, you're not taking up as much uh, room in the traffic pattern and uh, as much time uh, before you're pointed toward the runway and landing on it. And uh, in, in many cases, that's that's a good thing for both controllers and for uh, pilots and their passengers. Uh, gets them to the gate a little bit faster. And uh, but I think the point that I was trying to make is that um, while I agree, Justin, that if, uh, for instance, I, 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 the last time I recall doing this was a Myrtle Beach. It was at night, and it was clear. It was visual VMC, uh, visual meteorological conditions. I hadn't flown into Myrtle Beach in a while. I know there's not a lot of terrain or anything out there, so that's not really a factor. But it was late. I was tired. Um, hadn't been there in a while. And I just told my first officer, let's just ask for vectors for the uh, ILS. Yeah, whether we – and we could see the airport for quite a ways out on on a, on a downwind and base, et cetera. Um, but basically the reason why I asked for the ILS approach is that – that's going to force the controller to set me up a little bit further away from the final approach fix and uh, on a on a, uh, a nice intercept heading. Uh, I could do that myself, yes, uh, that could be argued, but it just, um, just allows for uh, a higher comfort level for me in this instance where, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it may have saved me, um, you know, 30 seconds or a minute if I just accepted a visual approach and made a shorter base turn. And in fact, a lot of times you know, you can ask for a shorter uh, ILS approach. But, you know, if you just say a re- vectors to an ILS approach, they have a certain distance from the, from the intercept uh, point on the uh, final approach, a little bit further out than they normally have for a visual. And it just, it just makes it, I don't know if you could say it's safer, but it just made, make, made me feel more comfortable. Now, the thing that I think does make it safer is that when you're flying into an area with high terrain, like let's say you're flying at night into Asheville, North Carolina, uh, there, there are mountains all around there. And we've had, um, or I've heard of instances, instances, uh, of, uh, flights kind of getting themselves into a little bit of a, a bind, um, cleared the visual approach. It's visual meteorological conditions, and just rolling in the um, final approach fix altitude um, into the altitude alert window and just like descending like as they normally would going into any other airport at night flying a visual approach and then all of a sudden getting a terrain warning and uh, not thinking about the fact and having the situational awareness that hey there's some high terrain out here these are mountains and I can't just willy-nilly even though i can see the airport 
you know, when it's dark and there's, you know, there's not a lighting, a lot of lighting on the, um, the mountainside, um, you know, you could fly right into the terrain. And luckily we have these, uh, in, you know, ground proximity warning systems and enhanced ground proximity warning systems that say, uh, you don't want to do that. And they warn you and they'll tell you to pull up and all that kind of stuff, but you don't want to have one of those warnings triggered. Uh, it's just not, and then you have to explain yourself and do a lot of paperwork and that kind of thing. And, and it's just not a good idea. Um, so, uh, our company policy is that flying into places, you know, like a mountainous terrain at night, even in VMC, you should, you know, ask for and fly the, uh, instrument procedure. Again, that doesn't directly correlate with my experience in a place like Myrtle beach. It's, uh, you know, obviously pretty much sea level out there. Um, there are some towers and that kind of thing you have to be aware of, uh, but, um, it's, uh, just, I just think it lends itself to be a little bit safer operation. But as you said, in general, if you have an underlying approach, an underlying precision approach, you're basically flying the same lateral and same vertical path as you would if you were doing a visual approach, just using the instrument landing system as a as a backup or a, or a guidance. But uh, I don't know. Just uh, it, it seems to lend toward a or give you a little bit safer, may, maybe more comfortable operation. Not everybody does it, but uh, that's just his, my His philosophy. second question, Jeff, was what do yeah. you do if there's no guidance available? Okay. When there's no guidance, like, for instance, at um, Boston, uh, four left um, at night, and uh, there, he's right. There is no uh, instrument approach procedure to four left. There are parallel runways, uh, four left and four right. Normally, you are cleared to uh, the uh, approach to four right. Four left is a little bit shorter runway, a little bit more, a little shorter route to uh, you know getting to the terminal gates. Um, and in this case, well. Because you don't have an underlying approach, you can't put any of that in there. Uh, but you do have some ground-based uh, navigational aids. And uh, let me look here at four left. Okay, four left. So four left does have a precision approach path indicator on the left side of the runway, a PAPI, a three-degree. Um, so it's uh, the precision approach path indicator is a series of four... Uh, lights and the if you're on a whatever the uh, glide path angle is it's normally three degrees and in this case four left is a three degree glide path um, you you have the two lights on the left white and the two lights um, the third and fourth light red that means you're on a three degree glide path and then if you see like three whites and one red that means that you're i believe a half dot high or is that a quarter dot high i can't remember exactly the details but you're a little bit higher than a three degree glide path if you see four white lights that means you're too high uh, the other way around is if you see one white and three red that means you're below the three degree gl glide path and you don't want to be below the three degree glide path until you're very close to touchdown and you're in that transition to uh, your landing flare etc um, and that brings you down to it so it's, it's basically a visual 
guidance uh, instead of a, an electronic glide slope or a um, an RNAV uh, precision um, guidance uh, path to the to the runway. Um, also, they have runway end identifier. They have all this information on our our charts. So you know when you're when you're briefing this or briefing the possibility that you might get a clearance to land on four left, you you familiarize yourself with the aids that you have, the visual aids, um, the pappies on the so left. So there are no approaches the that would have absolutely lights. nothing to help you. Is that true? Like what was you, that, you Liz? would never have an you would never have an approach that would have absolutely no nothing available for no, you to guide that's you. That's not in. true. There are there are times. Oh, okay. When you might be operating into an airport that uh, their instrument landing system, or maybe they don't even have an instrument landing system, they may not have RNAV approaches to the like any charted instrument approach procedures for the, for a particular runway that you have to use because of the meteorological conditions, uh, like the winds and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, there sometimes. They either don't have a PAPI system or a VASI visual approach slope indicator system, or perhaps it's notumed out of service. Um, so those are some of the even in the day in daytime conditions sometimes are kind of a challenge because you have to kind of rely upon using your pilot brain to kind of make these mental calculations. Okay, how far am I? From the t- touchdown zone of the uh, runway, how and uh, how you know how high should I be at this point, and that you just kind of have to use your your calibrated eyeballs and uh, backing it up with the math, the old-fashioned you know three degree you know uh, for every um, every uh, mile that's three hundred feet, and then uh, so if you're two miles out, you should be at six hundred feet uh, above the touchdown zone. Uh, you know, a mile, about 300 feet. So you have to have a way to figure out, um, you know, how far you are from the end of the runway. And uh, and then you have to consider, you know, some visual illusions you might be dealing with. If it's a short runway, you know, you have to take that into account. Or if it's a very long runway, you know, you have to, you know, sometimes you get these illusions that um, you think mm-hmm. that you're on a proper glide path. But unless you're doing those backup calculations, that math, that pilot brain stuff, uh, you could find yourself really not on a stabilized glide path, but uh, it's a very rare thing, Liz, that you, we operate into okay, places thanks. that don't have um, instrument approaches, and there are some requirements for, you know, cer- based on certain weather conditions, and maybe sometimes at you know nighttime operations. If you know, if you know before you even leave that you're not going to have any of these things helping you, then you might be restricted from operating Would that be there. captain's only landing? Um, it could be. It just depends on uh, the airline and the uh, standard operating procedures, the, the rules that they've set up for you know these, these types of approaches. I do know that at ACME, um, there have been times that we've operated into places like, um, uh, let's see, um, Daytona Beach. They were doing some work on their normal long – uh, airline operator uh, runway, and they were putting us on a really pretty short runway, and that was a case where we were allowed to operate in there, uh, you know, in certain weather conditions. And in this case, it was like only the captain uh, will perform the uh, the landing, and just to because in general, not always true, but in general, the uh, captain will have a little bit more experience uh, operating 
the uh, flights and these kind of uh, challenging conditions. Not always true, but, you know. Right. Um, I mean, like, for instance, uh, you know, my favorite first officer, Brent, he's been doing this for quite a while, and he's a very senior first officer, and he's been flying with a lot of captains that are junior to him and uh-huh. uh, don't have as much experience on the airplane that he, uh, that he has. And so you know, that's one of those situations where man, maybe – Brent should be the one operating the airplane mm-hmm. in a, gotcha. a, a demanding situation, but that's not just not the way it works. You know, the captain, I guess, is that's the great. one that has all Thanks. the uh, has the responsibility. I hope that I hope I made some sense um, trying to explain all of that, um, but um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting a little bit more conservative in my viewpoints as I get a little bit older, um, and it's just kind of I've I've read some philosophy regarding this sort of thing um online and and talked with people that have even more experience than i have and i've got i've kind of talked myself into thinking well you know i could be a cowboy and just do it like i've always done it in for most of my career (laughs) or i could thank you yeah well you blew my ears out with that yeehaw liz um and or i could uh you know like do it a little bit more conservatively and uh and uh just you know Maybe it's not necessarily safer, but it just makes me feel a little bit more comfortable uh, operating into places at night. And uh, it only takes a cup, like an extra 30 seconds or a minute. So you're burning just a tiny bit more fuel. You arrive at the gate maybe a, a little bit later than you would have if you had just flown the visual. Um, but uh, it's, it's not significant. And most of the time I'm operating flights relatively early uh i very liz and i were having this conversation the other day that um she hardly ever sees me operating a flight leaving the gate late or even arriving anywhere close to you know mm-hmm. being late at all and uh mm-hmm. you know, i have a pretty good record of uh you know operating flights on time and uh completion rate's pretty high but a lot of that's not just me it's the all the support that i have with this great airline that i fly with acme airlines yep acme airlines is the best all right number five so let's move on uh number five from uh texas and lashock and he said just had to share this uh did you know that apparently the f-35 is a failure well apparently People on the vast and infinite well of intelligence and wisdom that is known as Quora are wondering what the Air Force is to do about it now. A few people have offered responses, but the one linked here is my humble, in my humble opinion, is the best. Most of the other answers fall into one of two categories, either attempts to educate the questioner about why the premise of the question is flawed to begin with, with, with uh, or very short answers that basically boil down to quote, you're an idiot. (laughs) This one, however, simply hits the sarcasm switch hard and then dials it all the way up past max. Just had to share that. It was too good to pass up. This is Texas and LaShock signing off. So Paul Adam um, set uh, set about to answer this question, what can the U.S. Air Force do now that the F-35 is officially a failure? So here's Paul Adams' answer. Well, clearly, this proves that the military-industrial complex has failed, and its efforts to produce ever more expensive, ineffective, useless aircraft 
have been exposed. After the disastrous performance of boondoggles like the F-4, F-15, F-16, F-22, the U.S. Air Force finally have the chance to discard the wasteful, expensive nonsense of radars and electronics and jet engines and return to fielding inexpensive, robust, war-winning aircraft. The only credible answer is to immediately replace the P-47 Thunderbolt back in production as a U.S. Air Force multi U.S. Air Force's multi-role strike fighter, able to scythe enemy aircraft out of the skies with its eight guns, eight invincible half-inch. Jeff, you should know guns. scythe. Yes, I should know that. Those <laughs> I'm not watching what you're doing. Uh, the Grim Reaper, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so let me let me go back to that so I can see what you're doing. Yeah, there there I am. And my favorite outfit. You're getting ready to scythe. Yeah, I'm getting... Oh, that just makes me scythe. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The only credible answer is to immediately place the P-47 Thunderbolt back in production as the U.S. Air Force multi-role strike fighter able to scythe enemy aircraft out of the skies with its eight guns. Eight invincible 0.5-inch machine guns compared to the puny single pop gun on modern fighters and destroy ground targets by strafing, bombing, and rocketing them with robust, unjammable, low-cost munitions while being immune to ground fire or enemy attack. The evidence is clear. Has a P-47 ever been shot down by a so-called high-performance jet in combat? No. Its combat record against expensive, overcomplicated jets is perfect. Has a P-47 ever been shot down by surface-to-air missiles? No. Its robust construction and heavy armor makes it immune to these weapons. It's time to end the failed experiments of jets and radars and missiles and return to proven successful weapons. Next week, why the U.S. Navy should go back to sails and muzzle-loading cannons and why the U.S. Army should replace its useless tanks with horse cavalry. Yeah, that was a pretty good uh, sarcastic snarky answer to the question why can't uh, what can the air force do now that the f-35 is officially a failure (sighs) okay um let's continue tim uh let's see tim this is not tim qualls this is another tim i think um he writes in a high APG team, the ATSB today released the final report on the crash of a C-130 during 2019-2020 Black Summer in Australia. Quite a few holes in the risk management that you could drive a truck through, in addition to a lack of information provided to the pilots by the rural fire service who were tasking them to the fires. thought you might have an interesting discussion. Well, not going to have really much of a discussion. Just This me. is Tim Hitchens. Tim, Tim Hitchens. Oh, right there. I, I, I'm looking right at it now. Tim Hitchens, uh, North Coast Manager. Um, all right. That's his byline. Anyway, sends this uh, link to the atsb.gov.au uh, large air tanker accident. A C-130 large air tanker accident investigation highlights the importance of risk mitigation. Uh, aircraft, let's see the key points. The aircraft likely stalled following a retardant drop when flying in hazardous conditions that included wind shear and an increasing tailwind. Uh, The crew very likely did not know that other smaller firefighting aircraft had ceased flying in the area, and the assigned bird dog aircraft had turned down the tasking due to the hazardous conditions. 
Aerial firefighting operations necessarily take place in a high-risk environment, which requires a continued focus on risk mitigation, a responsibility that is shared between the tasking agency and the aircraft operator. A Lockheed C-130 large air tanker that impacted the ground following an aerial firefighting retardant drop, likely aerodynamically stalled when flying in hazardous conditions. Okay, that we, we just talked about that. The uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau investigation found. All three crew on board were fatally injured when the aircraft impacted slightly rising terrain while conducting a climbing left turn away from the drop site at the Good Good Fire Ground near Peak View, north of Kuma in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains region on the 23rd of January 2020. Strong gusting winds and mountain wave activity producing turbulence were both forecast and present at the drop site. The fire and local terrain at the fire ground likely uh, exacerbated these hazardous conditions, the investigation report notes. The ATSB recognizes the critical importance of aerial firefighting, where aircraft are flown at low altitudes and low airspeeds, often in challenging conditions, in the management and suppression of bushfires in Australia. These operations necessarily take place in a high-risk environment, which requires a continued focus on risk mitigation, a responsibility that in the Australian operating context is shared between the tasking agency and the aircraft operator. As part of this investigation, we have sought to understand the risk mitigations in place at the time of the accident and have identified a number of safety issues that, it, that if resolved through actions, will further mitigate risks for large air tanker aerial firefighting in the future. Uh, the C-130 was operated by Colson Aviation under contract to the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. On the morning of the accident, the RFS State Operations Center had tasked two large air tankers operating from RAAF Base Richmond. I've been there. Uh, Boeing 737, not too far uh, outside of Sydney, a Boeing 737 and a C-130 to conduct retardant drops at... Um, hmm, Adaminaby, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, A-D-A-M-I-N-A-B-Y. The 737 departed first, and after conducting a drop, its crew reported that conditions precluded them from returning to the fire ground. The investigation notes that the RFS continued the C-130's tasking despite an awareness of the extreme environmental conditions and that all other fire control aircraft were not operating in the area at the time. A smaller fire control aircraft had ceased flying, a bird dog lead aircraft, initially assigned to support the 737 SC-130, had declined the tasking, and the 737 was returning to Richmond, having declined further tasking to the fire ground. Uh, This information was not communicated by the RFS to the C-130 crew. Um, Instead, the ATSB notes that the RFS relied on the pilot in command to assess the appropriateness appropriateness of the tasking without providing them all the available information to make an informed decision on flight safety. When the C-130 arrived overhead, the crew assessed the conditions were unsuitable and instead accepted uh, an alternate tasking to the good, good fire at peak view about 58 kilometers to the east, which was subject to the same conditions. Shortly after conducting a partial drop, the aircraft commenced a climbing left turn. Following this, the climb performance degraded, and while at a low height and airspeed, it was likely the aircraft aerodynamically stalled, resulting in the collision with the ground. Um, it goes on a lot more detail here. Um, any more takeaways, Liz, that you can recall from this? No, I don't than- think so. I, 
No, I, I, th- I think they just need to look at the details if they want to get into the weeds on yeah. this stuff. Yeah, I think uh, a good point, Liz. The, um, we'll, we'll have a link to the report from the ATSB in the show notes, and you can uh, go into much more detail um, in, into this whole thing. But basically, the bottom line, and we've talked about this so many times on this show, and it, it's so true in, in flying and really pretty much every aspect in life, communication. Communication is important, especially in undertaking very high-risk operations like this. Um, and the fact that the information that the 737 crew after their drop decided, you know, ain't no way we're going to do this again. This is too risky. The bird dog said, nope, not doing that. You know, all these things were pointing to if the if the C-130 crew had had been communicating this information, they, they probably would have said, you know, Maybe we shouldn't do this either. Maybe there's just too much risk. Gina, Gina, Gina's comment kind of says it all there. Yeah. Uh, Gina in our live audience says, when no one else wants to fly that day, take the hint. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but they didn't have But they didn't get the hint, and that's the sad part of it. Um, and the, 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 the uh, RFS, um, the firefighting service, they should have been more responsible in communicating this information. You know, I'm not saying that they purposely withheld the information. Because I needed somebody, you know, desperately to go over there and try to, you know, help get this fire put out. I don't know. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe not. Um, But, you know, it's so important communication. um, Jeff, you might want to uh, mention Nick's plane tale on firefighting called the Life Saving Bombers, which was done for APG 509. On 509, uh, we played um, the old pilot's. Plane tail. And what was the name of it, Liz? Firefighting. The life-saving bombers. Life-saving the life-saving bombers. Life-saving bombers. And uh, talked about uh, the heavy jet firefighting uh, aerial vehicles and all the risks uh, involved in doing this kind of work. Um, and uh, you said it was uh, episode 509? 509, yeah. Okay. So well, I'll try to remember to put that link Um and the, uh, you know what? I'll make a note here in Evernote okay, for you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, she's going to help me, remind me the, to put a link to that uh, that plain tale. Thank you, Liz. Okay. Um, moving on. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Uh, Tom T. Uh, the subject, or the title of his feedback, clear to what? And uh, he sent in a link to a YouTube video uh, from Bass Aviation. And he said, why do I think you've had 124 emails on this already? Well, actually, I believe you're the only one that sent us feedback on this, Tom. And uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, a YouTube video of Bass Aviation. We play a lot of their content on our show because it's very um, informative. And we can learn a lot from some of these uh, some of these instances and let's go ahead and find that file which is right here and open it up this happened at Orlando International Airport Vast Aviation Real Aviation Communications okay, they're showing an overhead view of number 5254 Kilo Orlando Tower Verified Squawking 1073 Orlando International. 
November 5254 Kilo, caution wake turbulence, traffic parking parallel runway 737 northbound. Turn right heading 090, climb maintain 2000, runway 36 left, third floor takeoff. November 54 Kilo, contact departure. Departure 54 Kilo. Delta Flight 
Anyway, they told this guy, turn right heading 090, climb and maintain 2000, three six left, clear for takeoff. Now, in the video that we're watching, and, and luckily, the um, the in the Cessna, they were taking some video, I guess maybe cell phone video. Uh, doesn't look like professional video at all. But this is the part of the video where you heard him go, no, 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 nope. <laughs> um, because they see uh, this airplane taking off on 3-5 left. And uh, it's clearly going to be a factor for them if they continued that heading that air traffic control had assigned them. And I'm trying to slowly look at this video footage to see the airplane. And I don't think that what we're looking at here on the video is a 737. It looks Doesn't more look to like me it. like a 757. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that original call out, uh, maybe that the controller thought that the Cessna it would, would uh, more rapidly uh, end up overflying that eastern runway complex and then kind of forgot about the fact that they were still out there kind of making their way heading to the east and maybe the original 737 traffic was not a factor at all and had you know taken off and and had left it to the north and somebody forgot to tell this Cessna that there's another airplane that's taking off this time a 757 and this is the one where the conflict occurred and that's you know good SA on the um on the uh, private pilot to uh, turn to a heading, I believe you said 150, uh, more to the uh, southeast to avoid overflying the 757, which is very rapidly climbing into his space. And uh, so good SA on the, uh, on the Cessna pilot and taking, you know, good uh, evasive action uh, to prevent being knocked out of the sky by this 757. So I don't know. Would they would would the TCAS on that 757 be going off at that point? Um, that's a good question. I would think so. If um, well, I don't know. Um, yeah, I would think that the the TCAS system on the airliner would uh, would see the Cessna. Uh, traffic because mm-hmm. they you know have a modest transponder and uh, right. yeah so they would um, they would see on the TCAS the uh, the traffic overflight and they probably would get at least a TA a traffic alert or maybe even more seriously a resolution advisory although there's no mention of it here no. on the uh, recording so uh, that's a good question not really sure if um, if they did get the TCAS warning, I, I'm not even sure that the 757 even got a, a call out. Like, you know, you're clear for, there's going to be traffic overflying, you know, your runway at 2000 feet. Um, I think somebody just dropped the ball in air traffic control here and forgot that um, this Cessna had been given this um, direction to overfly heading over yeah. the east. And um Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe somebody knows more about this. Uh, perhaps you're an air traffic controller listening to this and might have a better idea what uh, what happened here. Uh, but I really think that that happened? original um, traffic callout to the to the Cessna um, 
the 737 was long gone by the time they were overflying um, the uh, 35 left departure traffic, which is in this case was a, uh, a 757 uh, flight 1373. Again, I'm just basing this on the video that we see, but good job, um, you know, keeping your eyes open and, um, you know, keeping up with the situational awareness and, you know, saving your life. Okay. Let's keep going. Some Canadian feedback here. Some Canadian feedback. Uh Uh-oh. This is from um, Captain Troy. Uh, Q400 Captain Captain Troy. Um, Just continued approaches. Okay. Hello, gang. It's Q Captain Troy from the Great White North. I was listening to APG 354. I think maybe it means um, 534, probably 534. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Uh, In which the crew was discussing an aircraft that had difficulty in a go-around initiated a higher altitude than normal. At Acme Boutique, Canada, we fly in and out of the island airport Yeah, in uh, downtown Toronto a similar airport to the old Chicago Megs Field. We used to fly uh, fairly fairly regularly a non-precision approach with a significant offset angle that had a missed approach height of only a few hundred feet above the company's approved minimum descent altitude on that approach. It was basically an approach we could use to get under a cloud layer then allow us to continue flying visually through the Toronto Harbor. We practiced this procedure often in the simulator, and it was quite difficult. As by the time you had the throttle levers in the full-powered detent, no auto-throttles for us turboprops, you would already be leveling out at the missed approach altitude, and often new pilots would overspeed the flaps in the simulator on their first time seeing this approach. Several years ago, somewhat smarter than I... Oh, you know what? I need to remove that. uh, Can you remove that video? Oh, sorry. uh, Yep, sorry. Thanks. I should have done that. Um, Let's see... Several years ago, someone smarter than I came up with a new standard operating procedure called a discontinued approach. Essentially, it can be used at the pilot's discretion instead of a missed approach when it is appropriate. Basically, when either pilot calls for a discontinued approach, the pilot flying selects the altitude hold mode of the autopilot. This stops the aircraft from descending, but continues its lateral navigation as per the loaded approach. They then set the missed approach height in the autopilot and use an appropriate vertical mode, vertical speed, indicated airspeed, or pitch hold to go to the desired altitude. The pilot flying will then call to clean up the aircraft and decide what actions are appropriate next. This procedure has become very useful since uh, we've now received authorization to do uh, our, uh, RNP, reduced, um, I mean, uh, required navigation procedure Yankee, RMP Yankee, a curved GPS approach into the island. This will allow the aircraft to continue following the curve of the lateral navigation while gently climbing to the correct altitude instead of a very aggressive pitch up and full power that is automatically commenced when a go around is called for. At first, when the new procedure was implemented, I was somewhat skeptical of its necessity. But after seeing it in action a few times in both the sim and in real-world situations, I really understand the benefit to having the procedure available when full power isn't necessary. Obviously, you could, you can always go around, yeah, but sometimes it's just not necessary to be as aggressive as we tend to be when we hear the command, go around, check power. On a personal note, 
After an 18-month delay due to COVID, I'm back to full flying schedule and should surpass 10,000 hours on my next pairing. Ooh, that's nice. I'm hoping maybe next year to transition onto a new fleet type that the company is acquiring this fall, the Embraer E195 E2. Keep your eyes in the skies. And again, this is from Q400 Captain Troy or Q Captain Troy. And uh, I think yeah. what prompted this from Troy was that thing in Aberdeen. Remember those guys mm-hmm. that uh, climbed too fast, too hard kind of thing? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was referring to this incident that uh, happened in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, where they were warned by the tower that they were more they were likely going to have to discontinue the approach because of some um, air ambulance kind of traffic. And uh, so they had some warning. They should have you know, briefed and been ready to do something reasonable instead of, you know, doing the standard, you know, mash the toga button and, you know, the nose goes up 15 degrees or more and the power is at full power and you're climbing like a rocket uh, toward your missed approach altitude, which in this case, in the Aberdeen incident was only a 400 feet, I believe, if I remember correctly. Mm, yeah. And uh, that's just not a good idea. And, you know, we at ACME, uh, it's been a, a several uh, recurrent training cycles now. Um, it was back when I was flying the Mad Dog. I guess we had some incidents like this as well. And uh, we were kind of trained that it, you don't always have to use the go-around procedures that are just ingrained in us where you're coming in and it's a low visibility approach and you're close to the ground and you want to, you know, hit the toga button, get that airplane you know, like a rocket heading away from the ground and not toward it. Um, and, and in that case, that's an appropriate procedure. But there are times like, you know, the one in Aberdeen and the one that he's talking about here going into to, uh, Toronto Harbor, that uh, it, that's not only unnecessary, um, it's uncomfortable for the pilots, it's uncomfortable for the passengers, and it can be unsafe. And uh, we've seen you know, several times when it, things are just going out of control, and uh, if if people can't get on top of it, uh, they can it can lead to, you know, bad things happening. And uh, we went through this a uh, couple of these scenarios where uh, you um, you might even have to continue your descent to the miss altitude or the discontinued approach altitude in the situation, which obviously would not. It would not be a good idea to push the power in because you're still descending to whatever altitude that they're telling you to fly to. And so you just have to use, again, I hate to say it, but use your pilot brain. I mean, we're pilots for a reason. We have brains. Put the two together, pilot brain. Think about the scenario. Is it really necessary to use full power in this situation? No. In fact, it could be an unsafe thing if I did that. So just because somebody uses the terminology go around or fly the missed approach procedure, you have to think to yourself, hmm, the vertical part of it, do I really need all, you know, full power? Do I need to put the nose up way up and scream like a, you know, a bat out of hell? Uh, No, you might not need to do that. You might just need to maybe leave the power where it is, maybe push it up a little bit. If you're climbing, you know, a couple hundred feet, Um, think about, you know, what you want to do with the configuration you might want to leave everything hanging for a moment while you figure out what you're going to do. And then at the appropriate time, you have a positive rate or your level at your miss or the discontinued approach altitude and, you know, clean up, you know, bring the gear up and maybe uh, 
put the flaps to a more appropriate setting and keep the speed maybe at an, a, a good approach speed and not accelerate to 250 knots like we are you know used to doing when we're departing um, and we're in that you know high power mode so these are all things that you have to think about and that's why i said when we were covering the aberdeen thing in scotland that that when that suggestion by the air traffic controller was given to the this crew that that was should have been the discussion maybe that was what was going on and they just didn't know how to execute it properly i don't know i i i suspect that they didn't have this discussion hey if we have to discontinue the approach let's do this let's plan on you know using this kind of power setting and cleaning up and getting the flaps to flaps five and speed select 180 and you know it's only going to be a couple hundred feet so let's don't go shooting through that you know just talk talk it out brief it it's very important that we do that jeff do some pilots just like uh the power, like just like just like hitting the power and 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 feeling that surge of power, is that ever I, a factor? Do you think? I don't know. I'm not sure if if that's something that she's wondering if we like or some pilots out there that like that surge of power and and that that sensation that you get. I don't think so. Um, okay. In fact, I, I I've been in situations in my career where that surge of power um, can real, and if you're in um, instrument re- meteorological conditions, when that power finally kicks in, uh, can really do a number on your, um, you know, your inner ear and your sense of, you know, which way's up and you know what's Got happening yep. and usual attitudes and yep. everything else. It, it can be a real, a real mess. So you have to be very careful about rapid acceleration. And uh, I, I don't know of anybody that. You know, maybe people you know, like that fly fighters and like putting it in a burner and love that super high acceleration and everything. You know, but they're but they're used to that kind of acceleration and power, and and it's not usually in situations like what we're talking about here. Um, Got it. So uh, yeah, I'm not sure that that's really a factor. I think it's more of a we we get so used to anytime somebody says go around fly the missed approach procedure. Boom, you know, toga power, throttles are going way up, bringing the pitch up and not really thinking about what, you know, like remove yourself from the situation. Look at the airplane like you're watching a flight simulator thing where you can look away, you know, you can be behind the aircraft and see what the airplane's doing. You have to kind of form that that mental image in your brain that this is what's happening with my airplane now. Is that appropriate? Is that really what I want to do? with this airplane at this point, you know, so we, we did practice this kind of uh, scenario in, uh, in the simulator. But as I said, that's many, many years ago. It's probably something that we should do a little bit more often, um, in our, in our training, uh, because it seems to be happening more and more. And, uh, so just, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the terminology that they're using is the same terminology, but you have to, you have to decide whether or not it's appropriate for the situation that you're in. So he may be telling you, or she may be telling you to execute the go the uh, go around or a missed approach procedure, but maybe you need to modify it a little bit. You know, use some discretion. Use the pilot brain. Got it. All right. Um, thanks. That was um, good to hear about this um, this new approach or discontinue approach philosophy over at. Porter. I mean, um, uh, what do you call it? Boutique. Acme Boutique, Canada. 
All right. Uh, Stefan um, from Hamburg. Hi, Liz. I hope. Oh, this is to you. Should I, should I go ahead and of read Of course. It? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I'm annoying you with too much feedback regarding uh, GPS, RNAV, WAS, etc. Does he mean, I hope I'm not annoying you? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think it, yeah. <laughs> no, it says, though, he does hope that he's annoying you, Liz. Yeah, uh, well. That's kind of mean. It's interesting that there is still so much uncertainty about some type of approaches. This time about the GL. Is that his nice way of saying, you guys don't know what the heck you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I just think that whole uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle thing provoked a whole bunch of thinking. And, uh, these yeah. guys started going, yeah. Uh, this time about the uh, GLS approach. I actually gave a small audio feedback a long time ago about this type of approach. And then he gives us a link that we'll include in the show notes. Airlinepilotguy.com slash APG242. I'm Siri Copilot. Um, and there are some dashes and stuff in there. So again, uh, just uh, look for the show link notes. in the show notes. And he even gives us a time mark where uh, where we talked about this. Or where he talked about it, actually, in his audio feedback. Uh, GLS approaches are designed in such a way that theoretically it's possible to replace the old ILS receiver with a multi-role receiver in your Cessna. Tune in the correct channel and fly it like an ILS with existing instrumentation. Once again, thanks for all your work. Greetings from Hamburg. Stefan. Okay. So, uh, again, we'll link to that um, part of the show where he gave his audio feedback about these types of approaches and sticking with that theme. Alan writes, uh, it's Alan from, uh, Tallinn, Estonia, I think. Tallinn, I think Tallinn. Tallinn. Okay. Uh, second time writing you some feedback in the beginning of last year, I wrote to you after the release of an incident report on an a 320 power off emergency landing at Tallinn. I think it's Tallinn airport back when I was going through my first, uh, my flight instructor training. Since then I've been actively instructing still as a side business next to my it job, but I'm absolutely loving it. I've managed to train five students to their private pilot license. Last one passed his practical skill test just yesterday. And one more skill test is coming up soon. Perhaps the number is not anything spectacular, but given that according to some statistics, Estonia has the lowest percentage of VFR days in Europe in a year, then it's not bad either. Not to mention that part of the year is almost always dark outside. Not good for PPL training. Anyway, this time I became curious about the discussion you have had on a number of recent shows regarding the various GPS-based approach procedures and whether and when they are susceptible to errors in altimeter settings. I had a feeling that an important piece was missing in the discussion, although Captain Jeff actually made a comment on APG 535 along the lines of, quote, the system should give you some of the advantages of ILS and protect against altimeter errors. Perhaps I can elaborate on that. I decided that I will take on a small research effort to clarify the topic for myself and potentially provide something back to the APG audience, too. Given that in two weeks I will be traveling to Germany to get a multi-engine rating and I need to take another IFR skill test to extend my instrument rating to multi-engine as well, it doesn't hurt to have that brush up of my theoretical knowledge on GPS approaches. I'll first clarify what some mentioned acronyms stand for. So what is WAS, which is Whiskey Alpha Alpha Sierra? That stands for Wide Area Augmentation System. 
It's one implement, implementation of SBAS, or Satellite-Based Augmentation System. While the North American SBAS is called WAS, there are other systems with various names in existence around the world, but they work based on the same principle. For instance, uh, Agnos. Uh, oh, I love Agnos. Oh, that's not Agnog. Mm. Um, the European Geostationary Navigation Overlay Service in Europe. In principle, uh, SBAS or SBAS system has a ground has ground stations at known geographical positions that measure GPS signals and are able to determine errors in GPS signals. The error data is converted into correction messages that get uplinked to geostationary satellites, which in turn broadcast the corrected information to the users, such as myself flying a GPS approach in our flight school Cessna 172. The navigation equipment on the aircraft takes these corrections into account and can therefore ensure a higher level of accuracy than would be possible without these correction messages being available. One important characteristic of SBAS is that it covers a relatively wide area at once, making it economically cheaper but also less accurate than the next item on the list, GBAS. What is GBAS and how does it differ from SBAS? Well, GBAS is an acronym that stands for Ground-Based Augmentation System. Essentially, the system works similarly to SBAS, but instead of geostationary satellites, the correction messages are sent directly to the aircraft over VHF frequencies from the vicinity of the aircraft uh, or the airport where the signal is being used. As the signal is only used in the close proximity of a specific geographical point, then the error and correction messages that are calculated are also much more specific to the local conditions and take into account the GPS signal errors that are encountered in that area. As a result, when the corrections are applied by the navigational equipment in the aircraft, much higher navigation accuracy can be achieved compared to SBAS. GBAS is sometimes also referred to LAS or LAAS, Local Area Augmentation System. Now, how, how are these technologies used for practical navigation? GPS navigation without any augmentation system is not considered accurate enough to provide reliable GPS-based glide path information. Depending on the system, you might get a system-calculated glide path based on altimeter height, but which is susceptible to incorrect altimeter settings and other altimetry errors, like temperature errors. Or if you do not have any glide path indication, then you fly it similarly to localizer DME or VOR DME approach which is uh, the, the way that we fly our nav approaches in the uh, Boeing 717. We're, all, we're limited to um, what we call LNAV, um, the, uh, basic, the highest minimums, and it's basically a non-precision approach. If you have SBAS coverage and the approach procedure is designed for this, you can fly the approach as an LPV approach, standing for localizer precision with vertical guidance. For this to be available, the approach procedure has to have a published final approach segment data block. And then go back to the one that was before that, Liz. There's the data block. And that's the final approach segment data block. I will leave a link below to an example, the Tallinn Airport RMP 08 approach. The FAS data block provides information about the position of glide path that is fixed in space, GPS altitudes, glide path angle, threshold coordinates, threshold crossing height, etc. Meaning that in the case of an LPV approach, the glide path that you follow is fixed in space, like a beam of an ILS glide slope is. And you can usually follow it down to as low as 200 feet, like a Category 1 ILS. 
And this brings me to the main point I felt was not made clear in the previous discussion. GPS-based LPV approach, similar to ILS, is not susceptible to altimeter setting errors. Of course, correct altimeter setting is still necessary to identify your decision height, but incorrect altimeter setting would not put you above or below the correct glide path. However, if LPV is not available for whatever reason, such as SBAS being unavailable, and you need to fall back on the lower level of GPS approaches like LNAV, which might still show a system calculated glide path, then the altimeter setting errors do become relevant because the navigation system is not relying on altitude information that's receiving from the GPS and uses height input from the altimeter instead. How is GBAS relevant? In practice, it turns out that in my geographical area, flying it generally is not relevant as there are no equipped airfields nearby. But where the technology is available, it can provide an even higher level of accuracy compared to SBAS and potentially even enable Category 2, Category 3 approaches based on GPS navigation. Captain Jeff also said on APG 535 that there is something that they have in Newark. Yes, this is GBAS, the ground-based augmentation system. I will leave a reference to a Wikipedia article below. Okay, we'll have that in the show notes. It's a good article. I hope I was able to shed some light on this topic. For sure, it was an interesting read and a valuable effort for my own purposes. Thanks for all the great shows. Best wishes, Alan. And then, uh, so we looked at the uh, the the uh, FAS data block uh, graphic, the approach chart for that same procedure um, is uh, also something that we'll put it, we're showing now and we'll put in the, uh, in the uh, show notes. And then uh, the article, there's a interesting article from uh, Honeywell uh, aerospace there. I think they're the only company that's actually uh, in, in, in not, not including like Russia. Uh, that is um, installing these uh, ground-based augmentation systems around the uh, most of the world. And uh, so that's a pretty good article. And then, of course, the Wikipedia article uh, concerning the ground-based augmentation system at Newark Airport. Newark Liberty International. Good stuff. Um, I have to admit, I don't know a heck of a lot about it. I mean, we do. We're qualified and certified to fly um, uh, GPS RNAV uh, style approaches. I, I don't like them in the airplane that I fly because they're not very they're not very accurate. In fact, we flew one yesterday into uh, here in Gainesville and uh, uh, Will left the airplane hook, hook, hooked up and uh, it was uh, visual meteorological conditions but it was just like going over here and then over here. It was like doing all these S turns all the way down. I'm thinking that's enough. <laughs> like, what? Why don't you just hand fly the thing and you know, like, point it straight at the uh, runway? It's just the equipment that's available to our particular jet is not the best and most accurate, and that's why we're limited to the least precise um, of these RNP approaches, which is the LNAV um, approach, where it's just a, gives you lateral guidance but no vertical guidance, and um, you fly it like a typical non-precision uh constant approach angle uh approach and um two hour mark now jeff two hours two hours already huh okay yeah time's flying okay um so thanks 
for your feedback regarding this, and it, it helps me too. I, it's, uh, I'm learning a lot from you all, which is one of the, one of the great things about the show. You know, our our audience, our community, uh, we learn a lot from you. And uh, when you're hearing us yak about stuff, and you're going, hmm, "Thanks, Micah," that's not quite. Yeah, main man Micah, the least precise, just like APG, fifty percent accuracy. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's what I'm so used to. Uh, that term, uh, you know, shooting for that uh, 50% guarantee that we have here at the APG, it kind of trans- transfers a lot into my own personal life. <laughs> hey, you know, I'll, I'll say often to um, uh, people that uh, fly with me, I say, you know, I think we have a 50% chance of making it to uh, this airport or whatever. <laughs> I said, at least 50%. That could be 99.999%. No, I don't say that. I don't say that on my uh, public addresses to the passengers. They probably Good. don't want to hear me say no. we have at least a 50% chance. All they hear yes. is 50, not I'm at least a 50% chance. <laughs> anyway, kind of fun. All right. Oh, I had a guy. Uh, let me mention something that uh, happened today regarding PAs. Um, as we were boarding for the flight um, to come from Atlanta down here to Gainesville, uh, I was making an announcement. I like to, you know, like get out of the cockpit and uh, near the front door, and you know, use the the flight attendant handset, and you know, so they can see see a face, you know, to associate with the voice that's talking to them from normally in that hermetically sealed cockpit of ours, and. Um, it, it, I just enjoy doing that. And I was, I, uh, as I was making the announcement before we left, um, I noticed a, a, a young man and his father uh, come on the airplane, and they sat down in uh, seats one A and one B. And uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Lawton, I think was his name. It's an unusual name, almost like Lawton, Oklahoma. Uh, I'm not sure how he spells it, but um, he was sitting there in one B, and it was looking, you know, right at me and. After um, I finished making the announcement, we had a few minutes yet before we were um, scheduled to push back. And, and he walked up uh, to the cockpit. Or no, I think he asked the flight attendant if it, was, if it was okay to come up and see the cockpit and that kind of thing. And it was, oh, yeah, sure, come on up. And so his dad was standing behind him, and he was up there. And he was saying that he just has this fascination uh, of aviation, just you know, a huge aviation enthusiast. And he goes, have you ever heard of this uh, thing called the... Uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator, and I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we, we hear a lot of the people. Um, I know, yeah, I hear a lot of people talking about it. I don't have it myself. I've never used it, but anyway, so he was going on about how, and his dad was saying how he is just he's got the special, you know, controls, uh, not just using mm-hmm. keyboard, you know, keystrokes to fly the airplane, but actually yoke and stuff, yoke and throttles and all this kind of. He's I forgot what he called the thing, but it was some fancy stuff." And his dad said, yeah, he, he's really, you know, really eating this stuff up. He really loves it. And um, I guess he's going to go to a kind of an accelerated um, course to get his private pilot license somewhere like a camp, six week camp or something like that. Anyway, um, so he said, hey, I really love um, Acme because, you know, they let me come up to the. Co-. And that, this is not true just with Acme, but in his experience, I guess, in his flying, it's been on Acme where they've. You know, they've welcomed him into the cockpit and answered his questions and that kind of stuff. He said, yeah, he said, like the last one, they let me make a P, they let, you know, let me uh, use the handset to make a PA. And I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, you want to do that again? He goes, yeah. And I said, okay. And I said, you know, tell him like you're the, 
you're the backup pilot uh, just in case, you know, something happens with us or whatever. And, and he goes, okay. And, he, and so I pushed the button for the PA and I said, you got to hold this button down when you're making the, and he goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, like, uh, he's like making that, you know, kind of guttural yeah, yeah, sound, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I hate to inform you that uh, the pilots um, scheduled for the flight aren't going to be able to do it, but uh, I, I'm a uh, 10-year-old. My name's Lot, and, and I'm, I've got this. And uh, and he's, he kept doing, uh, he's doing the uh, the typical uh, yeah. uh, scratchy uh, voice terror kind of uh, thing that we hear when people try to mimic uh, airline pilots and their PAs. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain, Glenn Quagmire. Uh, we're looking about a four and a half hour flight time and, today. Uh, uh, I thought, wow. I mean, that was not what I thought he was going to do and say. And, um, uh, and then we, it was time for us to go. And he goes back to his seats. And one of the flight attendants in the back said there were passengers back there that thought he was being serious. <laughs> oh, my God. And they were concerned that this kid was going to be flying their airplane. I'm thinking, seriously? You really think? Did they really think that this kid, they don't understand sarcasm and all that? So I had to make a PA very quickly. Jeff, you got to go do number 12 so, right now. You know, Skip that, 11 and go right to 12. Okay, I will. Um, so I, I made the PA and said, hey, folks, just if you're concerned about this, I, I, that was just a joke. You know, he he's not flying the airplane. The regular Acme pilots are going to be flying your flight today down to uh, Gainesville. So you can rest assured you don't have to worry. Um, all right, so we're going to... Um, <laughs> we're going to skip we'll go to, back to uh, 11, but go to 12. Okay. We're going to go to 12 here. Uh, uh, feedback. Kind of apt. I just thought it was interesting, though, that he he already had in his mind what he was going to say on the PA. And he kind of basically completely yeah. disregarded what we suggested that he say. And yeah. I'm thinking, isn't that a typical, typical pilot? You know, he's just like cocky. Uh, confident yeah. know it all and yeah it's like oh, i'm just gonna yeah i understand what you want me to do but i'm gonna do this because i think this is gonna be better <laughs> okay um anyway from uh chandrasgar chandrasgar yeah. chandrasgar uh hello captain jeff and apg crew i found this card on a reddit group and i thought it was hilarious what do you think of this regards chandrasgar chandrasgar and uh, you're going to throw that up there. Uh, there we go. Here's the card that uh, he hands to the pilots of the uh, operating flight. Larry, whatever his last name is, it's uh, it's, it's Landon, out. isn't it? His name's really Landon. <laughs> it's really Landon. It says, yeah, it's Landon. Landon's real name. And it says, has a picture of a pilot. I mean, a uh, an airplane. It says, private pilot, United States of America, FAA licensed pilot. Airplane, single engine land, date of issue, 7-18-1994. And then a note, Captain, I want you to know I have my pilot's license and I'm sitting in the back in case you need help at any time. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if this person is like like doing this as a joke. I Probably not. It's probably no, a serious thing so. where he wants people to I know. I think they're serious. That uh, yeah, you can use me if you if you need need me to. Yeah, uh, interesting. I'm sure that Landon's got a bunch of these cards that he carries with him. I'm sure. No, nah, I'm just kidding, Landon. We know you don't. Okay. Um, back to eleven. Back to eleven. Um, oh, we got some. We have some audio feedback from Mike from Philly, mm -hmm. and um, let's see. So I don't need to read this stuff here, do I? No, no, I don't. No, let's just go to the audio. Do the audio? Okay, here we go. Yeah. 
Mike from Philly. Help. This is Mike from Philly. I admit I have APG syndrome oh, and no. I'm rapidly catching up to the current episode. To help me manage my APG syndrome, I'm wondering if you could please start increasing the number of episodes to maybe five or six per week. <laughs> On the very slim chance you can increase the rate, I'm wondering how others have managed their APG syndrome once they caught up. I guess I'll have to join the Slack group and donate to the coffee fund now. Yeah. I also have to thank you for answering my questions regarding general aviation in other countries and the applicability of a U.S. PPL certification. You supplied the quality of answers that I've come to expect from the APG crew. My takeaway from your answers is that there will be a good bit of work to fly in other countries unless I find a U.S. registered plane. Having my U.S. PPL and gaining flying experience will definitely help. I am curious on how you incorporate the many I-don't-know responses into the accuracy calculation. Technically, you were right about not knowing, <laughs> so I guess that improves the overall accuracy. Darn right. I recently find completed a way. my discovery introductory flight, which only fed my interest to continue. I'm starting my lessons in October, so wish me luck. Blue skies and tailwinds. Thanks. Mike from Philly. Good luck, Mike from Philly, on your uh, on your lessons coming up here in October. That's awesome. Hope that you'll keep us posted. Keep us posted. Send in feedback and all that jazz. Um, so uh, yeah, so it, it, the algorithm and calculations for our extremely high accuracy rating They're that top is secret. nearing fifty percent. Um, yeah, are, are just too complicated to kind of you know express exactly. really. Yeah. Um, it, it'll go all over your you know way over your heads. Um, so, but just rest assured that when we say that we don't know, it's just a, a way of letting you know that we're close to the ground. We're not, you know, flying high and in the clouds. We're human. We're, we're human. We, we try to give you the impression that we're just like you and we don't really know that much, but we really do. But it's just a way of kind of keeping it real. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's because we don't really know. And I would rather, and it's our philosophy on the crew, that we would rather not BS you and make up some kind of an answer and make you think that we really know what we're talking about if we don't really know what we're talking about. And to me, that's the beauty of this style show is that when we say something and we say, we don't know, but maybe somebody listening out there does know the, the, the answer to this let us know. Send in feedback. And that's I what don't know makes if I this... like this comment by Gina. Oh, Gina's saying opposing bases helps with APG withdrawal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Opposing bases. Um, it's a great podcast. I mean, I, I love listening to it and they're, they're great guys. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, uh, I think it appeals to a, a more niche audience or niche. If you are a French, mm -hmm. uh, audience, um, or the subjects are more finely focused on certain things, the kind of things that we sometimes talk about here. But the audience that we have here is a much wider gamut of uh, mm -hmm. aviation enthusiasts and uh, professionals and the whole mix. And uh, we can all get along because we all share the a love of aviation here. So it's, you know. But I do we love are the world. Bases and, we are uh, the children. Those two guys are okay. Um, no, they're more than okay. They're great. Um, so um, let's 13. continue his. Well, he, he said uh, oh, feedback, yeah. uh, comments for episode 517. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, 
You discussed landline buses. I like the idea of the landline buses from Allentown in Atlantic City to the Philadelphia airport. Both cities are about a one and a half hour drive and are probably too close to provide connecting flights given the costs and pilot shortages. The bus is a great alternative, especially if they allow check-in when getting on the buses. Even better if they drive you directly to your connecting flight, but realize that that would be a logistical challenge since most everyone will have different flights. Those areas have a lot of travelers who may travel to Philly, so it's worth the experiment to try it out. If the airlines don't get the volume, it's easy to cancel the service. Yeah, true. I'm still kind of scratching my head, though, about the they're screened before they board the bus, and then once they get to the airport, they don't have to be screened again, which is, uh, I don't know, that's that secure or not. I guess it is. Uh, feedback number two, I left this as an audio call, too. Here's the transcript. Oh, okay. So that's what we just heard in the yeah, audio feedback. Okay. So, um, yeah, I hope that you have a great discovery introductory flight. Uh, in a, um, Oh, he did have a great discovery introductory flight, which fed his interest to continue. And he's starting his real lessons in October. So, uh, as again, uh, we said, uh, make sure that you let us know how that all goes. Thanks, Mike. And... Um, uh, what, 13? 13. Okay. 13. Um, this is from hmm, I haul 53 gallons usable. Usable. I haul 53 gallons usable. Tarmac. <laughs> Captain Jeff and Liz. Love the show and the entire crew. Huge fan. We love you too. Uh, I am a GA private pilot of the mighty C-172 Skyhawk and a senior network engineer out of the Chicago area, and I love hearing the entire crew's perspective on the issues you, you discuss. Even when you all get overly technical and in the weeds, landing gear actuators and the like, <laughs> he's probably talking about uh, Miami Rick, I still hang in there and listen, suffer through it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm usually talking back to you guys in my SUV while listening and giving my opinion. <laughs> I'm glad we don't can't hear that. I seriously doubt you can hear me, though. Yeah, no, we can't, thankfully. Anyway, I wanted to send you this story just in case you hadn't seen it already. One, because it's funny that they ran out of fuel after taxiing for eight and a half hours. Two, because it's hilarious that they were actually taxiing for eight and a half hours. And three, because not only is the reporter trying to use the term tarmac, uh, but there is a whole argument going on down in the comments section about whether there is even a tarmac or not. Laugh out loud. Uh, P.S. Apologies if, you, if you've already covered the story. Looking forward to the next show. Best regards. I haul 53 gallons usable. Um, so the link is to an article from uh, aeroexplorer.com. And on uh, last, uh, just in August, recently here, August 22nd at Newark Liberty International Airport, uh, Echo Whiskey Romeo, a United Airlines Boeing 737-900ER taxied for eight and a half hours total until the flight was canceled, running out of fuel in the process. Okay, that's not very accurate, really. Uh, for more than eight hours, the aircraft sat on the ramp awaiting its turn to depart. Again, total, not all in one whack. The flight from Newark to Denver was about to begin its journey when inclement weather, consisting of thunderstorms and lightning, caused delays. After three hours of waiting on the tarmac to take off, the aircraft returned to the gate for its first time. Okay, so three hours 
Uh, there is a rule that's been in place now for a little while called the three-hour tarmac or tarmac um, delay rule. What is the actual uh, title of that? Do you recall, Liz? I'm sorry, Tar- I don't. Let me let me see yeah. if I can yeah, find do a, it. Do a search for the tarmac. Um, yeah, I'm going rule. for it. Um, and that's and that's going to be important because that's going to help answer the question about tarmac. Anyway, so they they got back to the gate before the um, they got fined. Um, passengers were supposedly told, "If you really need to go to the bathroom or stretch your legs, go ahead, but we really prefer you don't, and we won't hesitate to leave you behind." Okay, well that's probably something that they heard, they thought they heard them say, and they may have misconstrued what they said. We will tell people, "Hey, if you need to, you know, leave the airplane or leave the gate area." Just know that if we all of a sudden have to load up the airplane really, really quickly and you're like getting food somewhere or you're taking your time in the bathroom, whatever, um, you know, just know that you need to not go too far and you need to stay close by just in case we need to get you back on the airplane quickly. Yeah. Okay. There's, There's a U.S. Department of Transportation tarmac delay rule. Okay. U.S. Department of Transportation tarmac delay rule, which is... Uh, Carriers are not allowed to hold yeah. a domestic flight on the tarmac for more than three hours or an international flight for more than four hours. Okay, so domestic flights, three hours max, four hours max for the international flights. And there are some um, exceptions for safety yeah. reasons, but those are the rules. Okay, so um, the reason, and you mentioned this in your in your feedback... You know, the commenters are, are questioning whether that's even the right terminology or if there is even such a thing. Well, we use that word, tarmac, because that's the DOT, the the uh, the rule, the three-hour tarmac rule or tarmac delay rule. Uh, so that's why we say tarmac, because that's what the rule says and uses. Uh, so put that one to rest. Um, I just sent you the article that you might want to put in the show notes about okay. all about that. Thank you, Liz. She's uh, sent me the uh, link to the article that she re- just referred to. Um, okay, so and and again, I've 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 made this PA to people, um, and I've heard the gate agents make it. If you really need to go to the bathroom or stretch your legs, go ahead. But we really prefer you to don't. But we're, we can't stop you from doing that. And just know that we may need you to get back on the airplane pretty quickly and if you're not here when we do that and we close the door i'm sorry but we may leave you behind uh, after the brief wait the aircraft returned to the tarmac in a second attempt to take off which proved unsuccessful for the second takeoff attempt now i would say departure attempt not takeoff attempt the aircraft waited on the tarmac for another three hours until it didn't have enough fuel to make it to denver should it have taken off yeah because we have um, well, here, let me go a little bit more into detail. This was due to a new flight plan to avoid weather given to the pilots by ATC and the exhaustive fuel burned while taxiing. As passengers stretched their legs during the second visit back to the gate, they were notified via the United app that their flight had been canceled. Since the crew were unaware of this notification, they decided to reboard the 737 and taxi. Oh, boy. And then, you know, that is, <laughs> that's an interesting thing. It's funny. Well, not really funny. Um, but it's true that a lot of times these apps that people have are they they are given the information sometimes that the company has made the decision to cancel a flight or whatever before they tell us. <laughs> That's kind of a 
it puts you in an awkward that's position. That's an embarrassing thing, yeah. Um, you know, so they, you know, they were really trying to do their job and get people to where they want to go. And they were starting the boarding process. And, yeah, a lot of people knew already that the flight had been canceled. They're probably going, why, why are we boarding? It's canceled. No, it's not. Look, you know, look at the board behind me. And it still says we're, you know. Sometimes, and it's even more true, that uh, uh, the captain sometimes is the last to know anything that's going on. You know, you'd think it should be the opposite, uh, but uh, that's not uh, not the case uh, in a lot of instances. Uh, I'm sometimes the last one that anybody bothers to tell, the, you know, what's going Aww, on. That's, that's okay. Sad. That's okay. I can handle it. Um, anyway, so basically, so you're out there making every effort to get these people to their destination uh, to Denver from Newark and because of the weather system you know air, air traffic control goes okay this is your new routing and what you have to do is you have to take a look and you have to communicate with your dispatcher to find out how much more fuel now we're going to burn flying this new routing or routing and uh, you may not have the required amount of fuel necessary to do the new routing plus have the reserve fuel especially if we're talking about bad weather you know it's it's um got to have enough fuel you can't just well we'll just take off and you know we'll get fuel somewhere down the road you know you can't do that that's not allowed uh, we have to have the required fuel uh, before we take off and unless there's a scheduled uh fuel stop somewhere en route that does happen on occasion for you know like times a year where you have very strong headwinds and uh you just no matter how hard you try you just can't i mean even before you take off they know that we're going to have to like go into let's say tucson from atlanta on a certain type of airplane that doesn't have big fuel tanks they already know that they're going to have to stop in el paso or somewhere in texas be, to continue the flight refuel and then go on to the destination uh, but that doesn't happen very often thankfully um, so this is what happened they said they're out there burning fuel as they're taxiing around obviously and then they get this new routing they see the fuel required and basically the dispatcher probably tells them nope you need to come back and get get more fuel because you don't have enough for this route and uh, so that's that's not super uncommon uh, kind of thing to happen when you're dealing with uh, you know inclement weather um, so they weren't uh, you know this whole thing made it sound like they were stuck they were on driving an airplane around for eight and a half hours just driving around an airport and then they just ran out of fuel like they just ran out of fuel and they stopped and they couldn't go anymore <laughs> no that's not what happened it was a total time of uh, and the way I read it I, I don't even think it was eight and a half hours. It was like three hours and then three hours. I don't know what the two and a half hours added was. Unless Maybe they the reboarded they were, for two and a half hours. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they were in the in the terminal for two and a half hours or something. But it's very misleading uh, the way uh -huh. the reporter reported this. But hey, you know, it's it's um, what, Journalism dramatic. Journalism at its finest. Yeah. Yeah. It was a horror trip. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, I'm reading a little bit more here. Ultimately, after two and a half more hours of taxiing, eight and a half hours of total, the onboard crew clocked out. <laughs> oh, no. Then the flight returned to the gate to be annulled. No, that's an unusual. I think somebody yeah. went in there, a thesaurus. And exactly. So what's another word for canceled? <laughs> Annul. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, we well, never Well, they were use... looking up tarmac, and then they decided to find a null. <laughs> we never use this word, annulled, when it comes to aviation. Now, if you're talking about marriage and divorce, yeah. <laughs> but Don't go there. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. And uh, anyway, and that happens. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, you're, you're trying to get people to where they need to go, and you're out there, and it's very fr- – you think it's frustrating for you sitting in the back and – reading a book or listening or watching a movie or whatever. We're up there. We're not watching a movie. We're not, we don't have anything to distract us except just start fuming because nothing is moving and you're just taking forever to taxi around. Well, you're it's not getting paid stressful. either, are you? No, you are getting, we, when you, Liz was asking if we we're getting paid. Yeah. When we block out, um, we are, the clock has started okay. for our flight pay. Okay. So even though we're not flying, uh, but we are, you know, on the clock. Um, okay. Good. Yeah. Good anyway, so a little dubious this uh, this article, but but tarmac was correct. Tarmac, yeah. Well, the use of the word tarmac was legit because mm-hmm. it's the tarmac delay rule. Yeah. All right. Uh, how how are we doing with the uh, time? Uh, we're just about six minutes from the two and a half hour mark. I don't know. Do you okay. want to? wrap it up or what do you want maybe one i would definitely want to do nigel's but uh, yeah why don't we do that so we're gonna Nigel do and then wrap um, it up. we're I'm, I'm getting tired and yep. um got an early morning again tomorrow morning um and but i do want to do the um feedback from nigel and uh he well i think he tells us what's going on with him uh on these uh two audio mm-hmm. feedback files so uh here we go let's start with uh the first one hello captain jiff and crew and community this is hong kong nigel i'm in a place called seligman arizona on route 66 and i've done 2000 of the 2600 miles we're going to do just coming into the desert and i'd just like to say It's great listening to your podcast when you're cruising down a boring old interstate. Unfortunately, Route 66 has got a lot of interstate concreted over the top of it, but we're having a good time. Got an excellent guide. I can't do a plug for it, but uh, they're called Orange and Black. The the guide's done it 130 times and know where he's going. He's taken me through Atlanta, but I didn't see Jeff. He's taken me through Las Vegas. Uh, but I didn't see any gambling. We've actually still got to get to the big Las Vegas. And uh, I've really come to appreciate, I'm on, I think it's 5.36 at the moment. I've really come to appreciate three-hour-long podcasts, Jeff. Uh, so if anyone gives you any hassle and says make them shorter, no, no, keep them just as they are. The sound quality is stuff going down. Route 66 by me, sorry about that, not up to my usual standard, but I'm having a great time, and uh, uh, Captain Jeff, you can even do some singing if you like. Anyway, just checking in and telling you it's great, and oh, and Nick, and I went past Tulsa too, I think you did a plane tail on that, uh, so I'm discovering places that you <laughs> Americans keep venturing and I've never heard of. <laughs> anyway, take care, all of you lot, and um, have a good uh, show next time. Cheers. Hong Kong Nigel, checking out. Cheers. And, um, yeah, here, let me, let me play the second one. Ah, this is the audio equivalent of a postscript, so I guess it's a post-talk. 
This is for Captain Slick, uh, who used to ride Yamahas and who used to fly Airbuses. This is what real machines sound like, mate. They're, uh, we're just starting up. There are 16 Harleys here, none of this 750 rubbish. They're 1800s and a bit like bones, mate. They're built to go better and further. Bye. <laughs> Hong Kong Nigel. Go back to that uh, one you were just showing there with in front of the diner. There's a uh, Hong Kong Nigel there at some diner somewhere, Main Street Diner, Maggie's. Um, so I didn't I didn't catch this at first, but Liz kind of clued me into it because you said something about him being in Atlanta. I guess it's not Atlanta, Georgia, another Atlanta. Somewhere. Atlanta, Illinois. Apparently. Illinois. Okay. On route, so yeah, route, 60, route 66 does not go through Atlanta, Georgia. And then the Las Vegas he was talking about was probably Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Las Vegas, Nevada. I Although so. I think yeah. that he will be going through the, the Las Vegas that we do always think of when we think of Las Vegas. Um, good, great audio feedback. Thanks, uh, Hong Kong Nigel. Uh, he's um, sent us some uh, pics as well, and uh, Liz's kind of going through them um a lot of big harley davidson motorcycles and looks like a a group of great people enjoying their journey on uh 2600 miles of uh, route 66 and uh i hope to do that not on a harley davidson but uh in my motorhome in the coming years i think that'd be kind of fun to do the the whole route 66 thing um anyway um Let's see. Do I, I guess I don't need to read his note to you. I don't do think I? so. No, okay. no, 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 that's yeah. fine. Okay. So, uh, always good to hear from you, uh, uh, Nigel. And, uh, it sounds like you're having a great, um, a great tour of the country. And he uh, says he might com be coming to Canada next yeah, year. Yeah. Might be to coming to Canada thing. next year. So mm -hmm. that'd be a lot okay. of fun. All right. And, uh, yeah, he's talking about Tulsa. Route 66 actually does go right through Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, as I said, I'll be there um, with Brent two on nights. Um, two nights from Monday now. night. So yeah. for the meetup there. So I'm looking forward to that. You better rest up then, Jeff. I'm going to. Yeah, I need to rest up for sure. Thank you, Liz. Um, so uh, I think now would be a good time to wrap this baby up and... We're, we always like to point you to our website, airlinepilotguide.com. Lots of good stuff there. Uh, learn about the crew and the community and the calendar for the community and uh, so much more. So uh, check that out. Uh, we're also on the social meds, uh, Facebook, Air Airline Pilot Guy, all in one word. On Twitter, we're at, a a at APG Crew. And on Instagram, APG Crew. And... Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, at Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, let's see, what else? We, oh, hmm. usually while somebody else is doing the social media stuff, I'm getting ready to uh, queue up the Slack promotion and uh, hadn't yet done that. So I'm going to vamp a little bit here while I pull up this soundboard and I pretend that. <laughs> 
Believe it or not, I'm pretending. Hillel's not usually really with me in the hotel room bathroom. Not usually. Sometimes, but not always. (laughs) All right, here we go. So this is when I pretend I use my my acting, my drama skills. Hey, Hillel. Hillel, can you tell us about Slack? See, it sounds like he's actually here. It, just so so realistic. It is. It's amazing. I you know I don't know. I think I I think I have acting talent that I've just wasted. You do. <laughs> yeah. Your All right, second well, career. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Hillel, okay, come here. Get in front of the microphone here. Okay. Now tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Um, hey, put put some pants on, man. It's caught in my zipper, Jeff. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, sometimes that happens. All right. Um, also, come on, Liz. Come pop yourself into the. There you go. We'd like Here to I thank, am. or I'd like to thank, my assistant um, who helps me in so many ways and really helps make the show what it is. Uh, Liz Piper in Toronto. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everybody. My pleasure. Thank you. And finally, we'd like to say. Uh, thanks for listening to the show, telling people about it, and uh, all that jazz, and uh, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline pilot guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly 